Do you like exclusive stuff? Yes, yes sir. sir. Do you like having access to your favourite podcast hosts in a way like never before? Yeah, absolutely. Do you wish you had access to our old Survivor Oz episodes that you can't find anywhere else online? Oh, yeah. If you answered yes to one, two or all of those questions, then get excited because the Oz Network is now on Patreon. <laughs> That's right, your favourite podcast has jumped on the Patreon bandwagon to enable a better listening experience for you, our listener. For more details, simply head to www.patreon.com forward slash oznetwork where you can sign up for as little as $3 a month. It'll be the best decision you make since that last bad one you made. You're listening to the Oz Movies Podcast, only on the Oz Network. It is the Oz Network coming to you for our final Canada vs. Australia month for 2023 as we go from talking about war to drugs to whatever the hell happened in Australia and now tragedy as children have died in a bus crash and your favourite comedic podcast is here to rip into it because apparently that's what we do. We're here to talk about the Canadian epic. You thought last week was an epic. This is a bigger epic. The 1997 Canadian epic, The Sweet Hereafter, directed by Atom Egoyan. Atom, up and Atom. <laughs> <laughs> Simpsons, there we go. Um, up and at them. Up and at them. Um, starring Academy Award winner Sarah Polly, starring recently deceased Ian Holm, and also starring some very, I don't know if it's over-the-top Canadian accents or... Uh, <laughs> there's, some moments in this, there's some moments in this where I'm thinking, like, is this Australia? Are they just telling them to say A about 38,000 <laughs> times? Um, but I'm intrigued to talk about this one. My name is Ben, and wow, I've never talked to you when you're in a car wash before. <laughs> That was almost my line, but I got a different one. Yes. Um, my name is Colin, and rule number four, we'll get your nose and have fun. I don't know how to do that. Um, should also say, starring uh, Alberta Watson's boob and vagina. Uh, <laughs> was not expecting that. Don't know how I feel now about Aaron Driscoll in 24. Um, <laughs> that was full on. Um, I'm all for boobs in movies, but not when it comes to certain people. Whoa, okay. Aaron Driscoll. Um Look, I didn't hate this movie. I, I don't know if I would rush out and watch this movie anytime soon again because it's not exactly a, I'm in a good mood. I'm going to watch The Sweet Hereafter. <laughs> um, this is kind of one of those movies where it's like, I always worry if we ever cover like Schindler's List um, or, you know, like, I don't know what we're allowed to say in this movie in usual Oz Network fashion um, because there are some parts of this movie where I also double took. Like, there's one scene in this movie where I'm like, huh? Like, isn't that, and that's, huh? Like, yeah. I like. I literally rewound it after the movie finished because I'm like, huh, huh, what? Like, so there's definitely bits that I uh, am going to need the smart one on this one to clear things up with. But it was, it was good. I can see what you said. It's a very Oscar movie. Like, you know, I could definitely see us doing this in Oscar month, and it's not a movie that I'm going to walk out and go, ah, oh, this is women talking or Little Women or <laughs> anything with women in it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you just opposed to women in movies. I really just worked that out. Little women, women talking. Um, what was the the, um, the favorite? The favorite, but that didn't have the woman in it though, at least. But it was that women. Well, it had, <laughs> yeah, lots of women in the movie. <laughs> Shit. But you um, liked Tar. <laughs> I did. Anyway, this is when the women are masculine. Ben likes it. 
<laughs> we're within masculine or naked um <laughs> but not eric just <laughs> no i just i'm disturbed i don't know how to feel about it anyway the sweet hereafter colin give us the the positive canadian spin yeah i mean this this movie was a big deal without being a big deal when it came out um, like us like very much like us uh you know still has yet to achieve any type of financial success this movie was basically the kids in the hall brain candy that that skit from the new series like oh i thought it would take six months it took 30 years to turn a profit you know um <laughs> uh, which really this movie kind of speaks to the issues with the canadian film industry which is you can throw as much money at you as you want at a movie but if you don't have money to market it nothing happens and it's unnoticed uh but this movie got acclaim you know, outside uh, two Academy Award nominations and Adam Agoyan, the first, and I think to this day, the only Canadian director to get nominated for a Canadian film as best director. And that was in maybe the most competitive year in Academy Awards history. So it got lots of acclaim. Um, the, the starts and stops to the box office were sort of all over the place. You know, I, I kind of heard about it more so because of the steam it was picking up through different, you know, awards and everything outside of Canada. Uh, but Adam Agoyan was, I guess kind of the king of Canadian art house films at this point. The previous movie he made, which I'm pretty sure we mentioned on 24 as well, because it was like Mia Kirshner's breakthrough movie called Exotica, uh, an erotic thriller. Uh, Why are we doing that? Was, <laughs> well, th th that movie was actually more successful. For, it was kind of, th that movie was uh, unexpected how much success it had even in the United States, you know, again, as an art house film, that Adam McGoin could basically make whatever he wants. But he... Figured he wanted to have creative freedom, so he made The Sweet Hereafter in Canada as opposed to using any connections he could have in the United States. But this movie, not really playing to the audience who watched a movie called Exotica about strippers and Mia Kirshner, um, it, it didn't really get an audience. But I mean, I do remember, it, I was a teenager when this came out. It was not the type of movie I would normally watch, but it was when I was really getting into movies and being like, oh, these are the movies nominated for awards. I want to check them all out. Uh, and I remember liking it and thinking it was a good movie, but never watching it again for like over 20 years. And it was a couple of years ago when it was on TV. And I'm like, oh, I want to watch The Sweet Hereafter again because this is one of these movies that one day we'll cover for the Oz Network, Canada versus Australia. And I was so much more blown away by it on a second viewing. And I think being a little bit older that I immediately told Jamie, okay, you're going to watch this movie. And I watched it again the next day. And I just watched this now, you know, for what the fourth time in my life now, uh, was even more blown away than I was a couple of years ago when I rewatched this and immediately wanted to show it to Jamie again, being like, Jamie, do you remember this movie? Uh, this is a movie that I feel like there's a lot of heaviness to it. You, yeah, you have a bunch of children dying. You have a lot of people grieving. You have infidelity. You have incest. You got a lot of heavy subject matter. Ta but Tasmanian I uh, bingo right there. This is, this is a comedy in Tasmania. Yeah, this is. Feel good film of the year. Family <laughs> movie, after. literally. <laughs> but uh, but I, I feel like this is a movie that it, it definitely is very heavy. But once you kind of know what you're getting for with a movie, like I found myself every other time I watched this movie outside of the first time, kind of feeling a little bit uplifted at times too, you know? Colin loves it's about children dying. We established this like <laughs> well, a week like, ago. <laughs> if, if you watch a movie, it's really about grieving and you know i guess the wrong way to grieve i mean it's a very smart movie and i i think 
all the little subtle things. This isn't going to be so much, oh, and then there was this hilarious scene where Aaron Driscoll whipped out her boobs and Bruce Greenwood you know, uh, pounded her from behind while watching a hockey game. I mean, yes, <laughs> that does happen in this film, but <laughs> but I think it's it's the subtle things that you pick up on in, in the way this movie was written, the way it was directed that really does so much more than your typical Hollywood movie with how they deal with subject matter like this. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't disagree with anything you say. Like, I mean, I, I just because I come across as dumb idiot Ben Waterworth doesn't mean I don't appreciate a good, smart movie. Um, you know, I do. Sometimes you've got to be in the mood for a, a type of movie like that. There's a couple of, like, random movies that I remember just from watching that I will go back and rewatch that are quite good. They're not light at all. Um, we did a movie in, like, when I was in uni studying film. And I can never remember the name of it, but I've got it. And I need to look it up. You might know. Naomi, Naomi Watts is in it. And it's like about a family that get like kidnapped at a cabin. And then like these, this guy like holds them hostage and like tortures them. And I think they all die. Like there's no happy ending to this film. Um, it's pretty full on. Um, but like I remember there was a reason why we had to study it. And I can't remember the name of it. And then there's another one. Funny that, Games. Funny. Yeah. That kind of sounds yeah. familiar. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's it. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that was that's pretty dark. And then there's. <laughs> There was another one that was actually like based on a real story. And it's like, it's it's one of those ones where you watch it and you go, there's no way this was based on a real story. No one could be that fucking dumb, but they were. It was like about this um, guy who used to ring around like fast food restaurants in America and basically pretend to be a cop and like get like girls naked and all this kind of stuff. So like there was like this based on this real life uh, situation where he got this like young girl at a McDonald's essentially to... <laughs> Like ring up, like no, it's not why uh, I watch it. I'm just, no, I'm just, I'm picturing you now. It's like, oh, and there was this. I know it's a heavy movie, but I really, I was taking notes. Like, okay, so he goes, he badge. He's got a badge on. That's how you commit. So that's how you get them in the car. But like he, like this guy literally rings up a restaurant and he's all like, "Hi, I'm a cop. One of your employees stole a wallet. You need to detain her." And basically this whole time stays on the phone and everyone in the restaurant believes it. And it gets to a point where like they strip this girl naked and get one of like the manager's husband or something to sexually abuse her as part of the police investigation. It's fucked up. Like it is fucked up. And this was based on a real life story that actually happened. Again, fucked up movie. Maybe there's more to that than I'm saying, but I, I don't get it. But the point is, I don't mind these types of movies. Long winded, winded rant. Children dying. It's fine. Um... <laughs> Like I'm no emotion. I, no, no, no emotion. Yeah, like I don't have children, so you know they just generally <laughs> annoy me. So um, that's where it at. But I think like it's a weird, a weird thing happened yesterday when I was trying to work out. Like I'm like, what was that weird arty Canadian film we did a few years ago, right? And I'm like, what is it? What is it? I'm like, and I go, just, Dead Ringers. It, well, at the time it didn't hit me, right? And then I turn on my TV and I've got like the smart screen and it kind of you know gives you mm. suggestions, right? Then all of a sudden it pops up and it's like, I think it's Julianne Marguerite now. There's obviously a TV show of Rachel Dead Weiss. Rings. Is it Rachel, Rachel Weiss? I couldn't tell. Yeah. Like it was a dark-haired woman from a distance. I was like, oh, who's that? <laughs> uh, racist. White women. They all look the same. But so I'm going like Dead Ringers and it sort of clicked. Like, wait, is that the movie that we did? Like, I was just thinking about that like an hour ago. And then all of a sudden I looked up like, oh, like that's one of those weird things. So I'm like, oh, so in two years' time are we going to get the sweet hereafter TV show? Like <laughs> something along those oh, lines. Oh, I hope so. Um. <laughs> But yeah, like I could see why this would be a big deal. And I actually vaguely remember whether my mum owned this or rented it because the cover, like the poster of like the mm -hmm. people like laying on the, the bed or whatever it is. Like I remember seeing that some point like and I'm, I, yeah, my, this is a very mum film for me. Like my mum would have loved this film. 
and I just have a vibe she might have owned this on VHS or something like that because at least the cover of this looks familiar to enough where I'm like, oh, yeah, I think I know that movie. Yeah, I think that uh, this movie, what's weird about it is that I, I, after seeing this, I as I got older, I went back and watched so many more Adam McGoyan movies and even Exotica, which you think, okay, a movie about strippers called Exotica, that's not going to be up Collins Alley, but it's like the movie's actually very different than you'd expect. You know, it plays to a certain type of audience. But uh, he has like a very distinctive style. And this movie maintains some of that, like a lot of the, the timeline shifting that happens all over the place, which is something that's so common now. But I mean, this is five, what? well, not quite five years, but at least three or four years before even Memento came out and Christopher Nolan kind of popularized that. Uh, this movie definitely would have been kind of unusual at the time, but for Adam McGoyan's other films, I mean, this is definitely one of the simplest and most straightforward movies he's made. Uh, and definitely very Canadian. What's interesting, though, is that, I mean, it's based on a book, and Adam McGoyan's wife had given it to him for Christmas one year. The book's not even based in Canada. He decided to base it in Canada because if I base it in Canada, then I can get Canadian dollars to fund the movie and everything, and I can make whatever I want out of it. Um, but uh, his wife's actually in this movie as well. She pays the uh, the hippie mom or whatever. Uh, she's in all of his films. Mono Browner. But, uh, Mono Browner, yeah. The, mono, the, uh, the, the couple not, of Mono Browers, and we'll get to them. Uh. <laughs> definitely not a real brow because she's in all of his other movies and she doesn't look like that at all. But uh, but I mean, he just sort of on a whim decided to do this movie. Like, oh, that book was interesting. Um, but I think the most interesting about it is that it it wasn't even supposed to be Ian Holm originally. Donald Sutherland was cast in this movie, and that. he was going to be playing the the main lawyer. And there's differing stories uh, about whether he chose to leave, you know, creative differences or whatever, or whether he had some other obligation or was sick or something. Basically, he had to drop the movie very last minute, and without really having you know, a huge list of people, you know, Adam McGoyan wanted somebody who kind of had a more commanding presence. The Canadian actors that you would look at didn't necessarily have that Kiefer? star power. Well, yeah, <laughs> Kiefer would have been great. <laughs> be drunk 27, hit. 28 years be old. hitting on all the, the girls in this movie. <laughs> he, he would have been shooting up with the daughter. <laughs> <laughs> the boss but, uh, I would have saved it with my bands. But uh, Ian Holm was just somebody that... <laughs> would Jim Carrey have done this? Maybe. I, he was kind of doing some... Starting to get into weird stuff a couple years after this. But uh, Ian Holm, who's you know, what British, just came to his mind and he offered it to him. But Ian Holm had never even done a leading role in a film before. Wow. And that was one of the reasons Adam McGoyan wanted it. He's like, here's one of the most famous supporting actors in the world, never had a leading role, but I could totally see him doing this. And Ian Holm was actually very nervous making this movie, not sure how do you be the leading man? How do you be the guy who holds the movie together? Because the novel apparently isn't even told from this character's point of view. He's like a side character. So, I mean, a lot of stuff was changed with it, but... I think the really interesting thing about this is that even though this movie didn't quite make the money they expected and it wasn't the original plan, the plan of like, if you want to make a Canadian movie get noticed outside of Canada, cast somebody who is a bigger name. And that sort of becomes so popular now in years since. And even Adam McGoyne, to this day, Adam McGoyne's movies, he's cast Liam Neeson in his films. You know, he's cast uh, Colin uh, Kevin Bacon. Colin Hill. Kevin Bacon, yeah. go back a step. Wait, which movie? No, that's that's uh, Where the Truth Lies. Another uh, one of the erotic thrillers mm -hmm. he made um but yeah i mean that that's not become a very popular thing but i think this was like the first one like oh we're gonna ian home and now we've got somebody that they'll actually sell this movie outside of canada yeah we do that I, we've talked about that before that australia sort of does that a lot of the time with their movies just a random tangent uh before <laughs> that's, how they, that's how they get Michelle barton <laughs> <laughs> fucking hell 
I know we talked about that on 24, but we should maybe just touch on that fact that uh, in Australia v. Canada month, more topical, Misha Barton, soon to be in Neighbours. <laughs> Fucking hell. Still, it's a dream. Um, Brady Corbett is in Funny Games. Is as he? in Derek from uh, 24. So I think he's one of the two... Well, I think there's like two guys that hold them hostage. And yeah, I think that actually clicks. So I think I remember when I watched it, I'm like, hey, that's a kid from 24. So I have a copy of that somewhere, but I don't think I've ever watched it. Tim Roth is the husband. Um, oh, he's not He's not one of the kids. I would picture him as a kidnapper. Yeah. <laughs> is Tim Roth a nice guy? I think Tim Roth is a lovely guy. <laughs> he's, I think he's a very nice guy. <laughs> Get him on the show, Tim. Are you a nice guy? <laughs> yes, I am, Ben. Thanks, Tim Roth. Now Bye. shut up and never call me again. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting kind of when you have that and I guess like we've always talked about the genre and kind of how certain countries have that type of movies. And yeah, Canada obviously seems like has that more European style. Like it's kind of whenever you watch like a European film, they're arty farty, like, you know, boobs and everything. I mean, I appreciate this movie within like three seconds. There were boobs. So I was like, oh, this movie's good. Um, but I like I didn't even recognize Bruce Greenwood. Like he looks yeah. very different. Um, mm-hmm. Ian Holm, I think, just never aged and never changed in his entire life. You know, because yeah. he did the Fifth Element, what like a year after this, didn't he? And uh, then it was the same year as this. Was it ninety seven? Was I thought it was ninety eight? Yeah. Um, and then what? Day after tomorrow, about seven years after this. Um, and then Lord of the Rings, like, well, he would have started filming Lord of the Rings probably right after filming this. Didn't even know he was in Lord of the Rings. There you go. Um, <laughs> we probably talked about that in the day after tomorrow, and I probably said exactly the same thing. Um, but, yeah, like, it's it's funny. So, obviously, with what Sarah Polly now, that you, as you talked about during the Oscars, she's now more of a, an Academy Award winning writer. Filmmaker, yeah. Filmmaker, which, I mean, she's a good actor, though. Like, she, well, she does a good job in this. Everyone, I mean, everyone acts it, really. There's no bad acting in this. I'll just say that. Yeah, I, I mean, her and Bruce Greenwood were were kind of Adam O'Goy and regulars. They appeared in several of his movies. And Sarah Polly, I think she only turned 18 when they started filming this movie. So she was very young, but she was probably one of the bigger stars that would sell this in Canada because she was on a TV show, which I think I mentioned this when we reviewed Women Talking. Uh, she was a star of a TV show called Road to Avonlea, which I wasn't really the audience for Road to Avonlea, but I was familiar with it. It was very like a late 1800s, early 1900s settlers type show, family show. But um, it was very popular here. I mean, I've always uh, mentioned that Canadian TV shows, a successful Canadian TV show, is basically a rule. You have five seasons that, and that's it. Like, even, even you you want to go out on top, and very few Canadian shows go past five seasons. Road to Avonlea went for seven seasons. That was one of the rare Canadian shows that, like, we're just going to keep milking this cow, you know? Degrassi. Uh, well, Degrassi, they had, that's more soap opera-ish. So, yeah, but yeah, s- similar. That one's, what, 400 seasons now? Misha <laughs> Barton non- stars in Degrassi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's got to happen now. <laughs> just, just start jumping to all the soaps in different countries. But, I mean, Road to Avonlea was a big hit. So, I think everybody recognized um, Sarah Pauly. This, this was, like, a huge dramatic role, though. And, I mean, after this, she would go on to start doing some American films. She was in the movie called Go with uh, Katie Holmes. Mm. Um uh, Doug Lyman directed just before the Born Identity and then of course the Dawn of the Dead movies but she just decided when she got into directing here in Canada she just decided ah, I don't need to act anymore so now she's basically given up acting but I mean consider that she was basically just turned 18 maybe even when they started filming this was just about to turn 18 the performance she gives like I don't think many 27 28 year olds can give a performance like she gives in this movie some people in their like 60s can't give performances in that movie <laughs> learn better old people um 
Just quickly, there's two things before we get into this movie. I love the fact that there are characters in this movie with the last name Driscoll. How funny would have that been had Alberta Watson <laughs> played one of that? Um, but also, like, I just literally am flicking through the tabs here on my screen, and I, I often have the trivia open of a movie, and I never really, you know, read through it. But literally, the first trivia item on IMDb answers the question I was going to ask you. It is, what the fuck is that woman wearing on her mouth when she's yeah. like in the thing? And literally the first trivia point is, as indicated on writer and director Atom Egoyan's commentary track on the DVD, many people ask about the odd mask worn by the note taker during the deposition scene. This is a stenographer's mask, an item which is used by real life by a stenographer to record her own voice, uh, his or her own, her own voice during the deposition. I was thinking it was that. I'm thinking like it's got to be some mm-hmm. sort of soundproof thing where you can sort of like take notes and she's probably doing shorthand at the yeah. same time. like. That's what I was guessing, but I'm like... It looks like they're about to be gassed by the Nazis. You know, know, um, uh, there's in one of the... I think it's in The New Hope when they're they're going back to the Millennium Falcon and there's that like spy from the Empire who's Mm -hmm. like creeping around the corner and has got that mask on its well. Like I thought it was that. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) that thing. So, um, yeah, anyway. Um, Famous last words. Don't think this is going to take long, but having said that, literally, I am going to get through many chunks of it because it's not like... (laughs) sequences to talk about is there so you know jump in when you need to really in this um so i guess i mean you know it's an art house film and the first like three minutes is like wood um (laughs) (laughs) like it's literally this like tracking shot of floorboards Saying, like, this is is who's in the movie. I'm like, oh. It very specifically has to be wood if it's an art house film, though. If that's linoleum, no way that's playing in an art house (laughs) film. If it's metal, it's a Marvel movie. Um, (laughs) If it's plastic, it's a DC movie. Um, But, like, we get so... who who Is this the monobrow couple who are, like, in bed with their little child? This is supposed to be Ian Holm and his wife with their daughter... This would have been right before the thing that he almost had to perform the tracheotomy on her on. This is his flashback. Okay, got to ask the question here. Just looking at this at a 2023 lens. Appropriate to sleep in bed with your boob hanging out, your little naked child and a naked man. I'm just saying, like, I've gone to jail for this. Um, (laughs) Yeah, this this kid is, I don't know, two, three years old here. Like, it is actually a thing. One of the things we learned when we had all of our kids is there's a thing called skin to skin, which they encourage for parents not not friends of the family, just you know, uh, but <laughs> specifically <ticket>. for parents. <laughs> when when a baby's born, they encourage basically, you know, you to have them you on two. you. It's gonna be they come in the bed. I'm Bono. I'm naked. Give me your child. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the sweetest thing! <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful day. <laughs> Sunday, bloody Sunday. Oh, too far. With or without you. <laughs> hello, hello. I'm at a place called Vertigo. I want Bono doing skin to skin with children. <laughs> Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. He's got his sunglasses on. She's shifting glass. Knocks on the door. Hello there, I'm Bono. I'm here to be naked with your child. <laughs> Here's my friend, The Edge. He's also here to do it. What would you prefer? Uh, still haven't found what I'm looking for. Discotech. <laughs> Underrated song. I like discotheque. <laughs> Where the children have no name. Uh, ooh. I actually kind of want to do skin to skin and discotheque now. I mean, I got no Whoa. more kids, so I can't. I, was say, I want to do skin to skin with Bono. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I why do. not? Or The the edge <laughs> the other two guys would you would you rather do skin to skin with bono or the edge let us know via the oz network <laughs> patreon page 
Anyways, point is skin to skin is a thing that they encourage for young babies. This kid though is like three years old. So, I mean, this is kind of meant to mess with you though, because there's a lot of, uh, you know, parents in this and you're not really supposed to know who it is. It's very subtle the way that Adam McGoyan will, will kind of reveal the timeline of the movie here. But yeah, this, this definitely, it's not even something when I rewatch the movie, I remember I'll be, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes into the movie when they get to that speech. I'm like, oh, that's right. That's who the couple is. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I'm glad we cleared that. I was like, oh, it's a poster. Uh, and there's a boob. It is a poster. Yeah. So, um, you know, there you go. So, anyway, Ian Holm, he's in a car. He's a car wash. He's working in the car wash. Um, and I love this bit when he gets like stuck in the car wash and he can't get out. But also, like, this is when his daughter calls up. Now, I said there's really good acting in this movie. If there's any bad acting, it's yeah. in this opening scene. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, daddy, I've never talked to you when you were in a car wash before. I'm like, huh? Is this for so, real? There, there is an excuse for this. Um, so he really was on drugs. Auth- <laughs> yes. Uh, but the author of the novelist is based on Russell Banks. So he has a cameo in this movie as the doctor, uh, as Nicole's doctor when, you know, she's in the wheelchair. But he, I guess, somehow bargained to have his daughter in the movie playing this character, Zoe. So this is the daughter of the author of the novel that this movie is based on that they gave a large role to and probably shouldn't have. Yeah, sorry, I was so disgusted I was drinking coffee. Um, Yeah, <laughs> she's a bit odd. But so basically, she's obviously strung out in drugs. So a lot of, like, again, correct me if my knowledge of smartness is is here because there's, there's two themes of this, right? There's the whole Pied Piper thing, taking the children away, and then there's this whole, like, Ian Holm trying to, like, come to grips with his own, like, you know, fucked up children and stuff like that because yeah. his daughter's all hooked on drugs here and it's all like, Daddy, you're in a car wash, Daddy. Uh, I need money. Oh, you're yelling at me because I'm on drugs. And Ian Holmes just all like, oh, God, I should have taken the fifth element. And then she gets taken away by old drug lord. Um, so, you know, that's setting that up. Although I do love, like, I was kind of looking at this movie going like, oh, like 90s when you had to go to a phone booth. But then he's still got a cell phone. I guess some people had cell phones in the, uh, in the 90s. Um, and then the thing that I think caught me on that this was shifting time was the fact that there's a very obvious... December 1995 calendar in one of these yeah. scenes versus a him on the plane and saying like November 1997. I'm like, oh, mm. okay. Um, so Ian Home gets stuck in a washing car wash um, and he's going to run out to the reception. And this is, so this is where um, the bus is obviously kept because he sees the bus. Like he yeah. looks through the window and there's no one there. I, I think everything's like in the same, bl- I mean, it's a small town. Yeah. So you've got the car wash next to the, the auto shop next to the motel. Now, I know we talked about the suspect that was filmed in BC. I guess it's never, because this is based off something that happened in the States. So mm-hmm. they never really give a specific location of where. So like, I don't know if this is meant to be set in BC or are they meant to be like, this is in rural Saskatchewan or something like that. Like it just, I mean, never the mountains, it would, with the mountains, it would have to be Alberta or BC. I'm assuming it's BC if they filmed it there for a reason. Um, but I, but like, it's interesting about this movie is that they, there are several things that even had me questioning. I'm like, is this supposed to take place? Maybe this is supposed to be Colorado. But then when you get the A's and when you get the tragically hip songs being played in multiple versions, you realize, no, this is definitely Canada. There's, there's one sequence when like everything was like, oh, eh, 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 oh, eh, it's all about that snowy. <laughs> and that's like when I was like literally going like, are they hamming this up? Like I, like, I know some Canadians so that, talk like that. I do understand that. I've, I've witnessed it in person. But like it just, it was that level of last week in Australia, like there are pockets of Australia where people really do have that Steve Irwin over the top accent but I felt they were hamming that up. So I didn't know if they were hamming that up in this movie to appease to like an American audience. 
Yeah, no, I actually think this is more of like a small town rural thing. You know, you, you'll definitely get more of like the stereotypical Canadians yeah. the further you get away from a large city. Yeah, yeah, the Vancouver and all those shitholes. Um, <laughs> so anyway, he's looking at the bus, and meanwhile we get this uh, scene of uh, little little women's you know, women's talking. Nicole Driscoll, whatever her name is here, she's playing a horrible song here. She's like, ah, like I mean, she can sing, but like that's. That's, so that's the tragically hip song that you're disgracing. I mean, it's off. a fantastic <laughs> song that everybody loves. Incredible. This is actually a very good cover. Actually, you know what? I might be wrong because I know she plays multiple songs. There is a version of her covering the tragically hip song that appears later on when they're on the way to the deposition. I don't remember if it's this point or not. It might just I'm just like I think I is literally it, offended Colin. That, <laughs> he like literally well, shifted this, in his chair like Ben. This is the tragically yeah, hip. <laughs> It, it really is. I mean, I, I, I don't know how many times I explain it on here, but like the success of the tragically hip in Canada is probably equal to only something like the Beatles. Like it is beyond as you know, the, the most success any American band has ever had in America probably doesn't come close to how big the tragically hip are here. But is, if this is the same song that plays during the end credits, then yeah, it's the cover of the tragic well, courage. But I think this is a different one. Maybe I look, okay. My defense, no clue. I, like, I know who the Tragically Hip is. You've explained that to me before. Do would I be able to literally tell you a Tragically Hip song? No. So, like, to me, I'm thinking this is just, like, little 16-year-old butchering some song and it sounded like folky hippie. And, like, I, I think we've talked about it before. Certain types of music drive me crazy. And this film mm. has that type of music when it comes to, like, hippie, sort of fluty, folky, like... Juno, oh, I, I love the score in this half movie. The why the score, though? Half the reason why I hate Juno is because that soundtrack makes me want to drive like screwdrivers <laughs> in my brain. Like it's just terrible. And then like Bob Dylan and the fucking harmonica. Oh, Shut yeah. up, Bob Dylan. Sick. Like so, like this type of music in this film, like just kind of drive me bonkers. Like it just it, it's a very coffee house. Uh, at least the oh, Sarah Pauly's singing house. is very coffee house. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Late nineties coffee house. Um, but anyway, so she's he. Singing an iconic Canadian song with great... Or not, I can't confirm. Um, but, like, I got a bit confused at the beginning of this film because there's a lot of daddies going on at the beginning of this film, and I'm like, I, I that's a... Ask Jamie, she knows what I'm talking about. That's, that means different <laughs> things when you're an adult and don't have children. So, like, she's all there up on stage, and she's like... Ah! And then you get old guy here who, at the time, I was thinking, like, oh, okay, is this, like, a band manager or something? Because I don't realise she's meant to be, like, 15 or so here. To me, I'm looking at this, she's like, okay, she's, like, 20, 21, sure. So he's all there, creepy smile with his cup of coffee, and then he's all like, oh, you did really well. And she's like, thanks, Daddy, thanks, Daddy. He's like, okay, it's his daughter, fine. So they're all, like, cute and everything. And this is where, like, I had to double take with what happened later on in the film. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, wait a minute, is it, like, what? Um, So they're all there sitting there, and then Dolores comes along and, like... I do love. She's so good. I love her, but like, does she? You know, like sometimes there are certain jobs that's just like stereotype, right? If you just go yeah. stereotypical school bus in a North American movie, because we don't have these types of school buses like the yellow bus. That's very much a North American thing, and like just lunch lady Dolores here or bus driver <laughs> Dolores, you know, just it just she looks like her, but she's great. And you sort of get this conversation here between Nicole, like, oh, that's Dolores. She loves her job so much. And she's all like, hey, kids, welcome to the fun fair. Don't touch the rabbits. They hate being here. <laughs> okay, no kicking, no punching. Let's get to it. Um, so then we go back to the hotel. Well, the, we see the hotel for the first time and we meet 24s. Erin Driscoll with her clothes on. Uh, there's Alberta <laughs> Watson. There she is. Um, and of course it wouldn't be a Canadian movie without being a Toronto Maple Leafs game somewhere on, because in the background there's a hockey game on TV and you can hear them talking about the Leafs, probably lost game seven. 
Um, <laughs> it reminds me, they're playing right now. I want to put it on in the background. Well, that's true. I've been, I've actually been quite hooked to it in the uh, office during the week because it's always on during the day when I'm working and I'm, I'm very much team Leafs at the moment because none of my teams made it. So, um, <laughs> what, spanked in the first game, then they spanked them in the second game. So, yeah. them and the Kings, fuck the Oilers. Um, so, he's all like, I want a room. You get this guy comes in and he's like, you're a reporter. The one, the one thing that, like, I get it, it's this type of film you kind of have these like longer shots of like emotions on a face, right? To like read it. Like I get that's that type of movie, but the parts in this film where they kind of focus on a person's face and their emotions go to a point where I feel it just feels just off. Like this scene where he's like, you're a reporter. They kind of like zoom in on Ian Holmes' face. They zoom in on Fat Man's face. They zoom in, like, there's just like a 10 minute sequence. Not really that long, but you know what I mean? And like later on when we've got old incest.com happening, there's just this awkward like stare off, which is just like, it just doesn't feel natural, like something like incest does, but staring at people's faces don't. <laughs> I'm Tasmanian, I can say that. I don't know. You can comment on that in a moment. But so basically, he this is where we find out he's a lawyer. So we're sitting down here with Aaron Driscoll and the man, and he's basically going on about like, cool, give us some information. Then he's like, oh, sweet, you, you sound like you would be really good witnesses. Can you hook us up with all these other people to do it? And then... Old fat man's here like, oh, no, they owe money to the bank. And, oh, no, he listens to Bono and the Edge. Like, you know, this kind of stuff. Oh, no, he goes for the Canucks. Like, basically disparaging everyone in the town. To which Ian Holm gets another call from his daughter. To which in the background, you've got all Alberta here and that yelling at each other. So I'm guessing this is meant to set up the fact that, like, oh, there's a reason why she's cheating on her husband. Because he's a dick. Um, so, <laughs> and he's got a little one, too, because he's fat. Um... And then we get our first sort of sequence here of Ian Holm on the plane. Remember when planes had one TV and you had to like get the uh, headset and Plug like it. tune it in? And then we meet old friend of Ian Holm's daughter here, which is this meant to imply that these two like, is he just thinking of her as a daughter? Or like I swear the end scene, I thought they were about to kiss. Like I, like, I don't know. I didn't pick up on that. <laughs> Maybe it's just me. Uh, anyway, uh, awkward. Uh, so... <laughs> he wants a headset and then we're finding out that she's obviously ever <laughs> <Whoa. laughs> headset. Oh, look at Colin making sex jokes. Um, so, and he, we find out that his daughter's been in like 50 different facilities. Uh, we get, um, a scene here of Dolores, the bus lady here waving or picking up children, but then she's in the neck brace, which like, I'm sorry. Like, I know this is like a universal, like, Oh, they've been in a car crash. Like you, you laugh at people on fire. I, I, I laugh at people getting hit by cars. That's kind of my thing. I also kind of laugh at people in neck braces. <laughs> like, there's just something like, oh, look at me. I'm in a neck brace. <laughs> like the dogs that have the cone around their yes. head. <laughs> it just reminds me of um, the scene in Breaking Bad where, like, Saul's got, like, the box of neck braces where, like, um, Walt comes in one time and he's just going, like, oh, here, this one. Try this one. It fits better. It makes people believe you're more injured when you're in. Like, it just honestly seems like, oh. I'm in, a, I'm in a neck brace. Or that, remember the Mr. Bean episode when he's sitting in the hospital waiting room because he's got the teapot stuck in his oh, hand yeah. and there's a woman body next to guy. him, the bodycast woman, like, <laughs> like just, I'm sorry, this woman's injured. But obviously we're starting to, you know, because I think, are we meant to always believe the bus driver's evil, at least in these opening scenes? No, I don't think they really want you to believe anything. Like, I think... This movie's messing with what audiences' expectations of a movie like this are, which is we're going to get somebody's going to end up being the guilty one. There's there's definitely several points throughout this movie where they're trying to make the audience 
start to suspect something that actually never pays off and that because the move the point of the movie isn't necessarily you're going to get some answer to this i'm going to keep going until we get to the next airplane scene because there's only about like two scenes after this so kind of this it's just a lot of dialogue scenes where ian holm is a lawyer and like he does a really good job like i think like there are moments i think i felt where it's like oh am i meant to like think ian holm's a shady lawyer because you know it's kind of like he has that sequence he's going to see soon where he's like oh i will work for free but you have to pay me a third of the payout and kind of all this sort of stuff but then it's also he does seem very caring. And I think like, oh, well, we've got something happening behind you. He's, just, I hope he's, not. he's scared. Like Collins, when he looks behind, <laughs> like which child's got a knife? <laughs> Bono's here with skin to skin contact. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, because obviously, you know, the, this sort of whole connection with like his daughter's story. So I'm guessing like there's meant to be some whole like connection there. But anyway, so he's talking over with Dolores here. She's given her version of events saying that she hit a patch of ice and, uh, I, I will question Dolores though. When we do get the bus driving scene, she is doing the whole like me, like you know the stereotypical movie TV show where they just move the wheel from left to There's right. There's a lot of movement, right. yeah. <laughs> like I'm, I get why people do that because it probably looks stupid if you're in a driving scene doing this. But like, yeah, she she deserved to crash off the fucking cliff if you're going left <laughs> to right in an icy Canadian road. Um, we get a flash here of uh, old um, what's his face driving behind the truck, um, waving at his children, which. Fucking hell. Like, doesn't that get old after five minutes? Like, I know you love your kids, but like every day, like, grow up, children. <laughs> get away from your parents. Um, and this is where we also find out for the first time that old Erin Driscoll is uh, not who she seems. <laughs> she's a mole at CTU because she's fucking Bruce Greenwood. Um, so she's all like, hey, big boy, what time do you want to come over? Um and still waving at the children. So again, I, I I'm guessing this is also trying to like set up because this is where I think we learn that he was the only, he was he saw the accident. I think Dolores here is all like, oh Bruce Greenwood saw the accident, and he's on the phone. So I kind of read it at this point of like, oh like maybe he like hit the bus or like he did something and mm-hmm. he was drunk or something like that. Like and they're, they're covering it up or something. So anyway, that's literally the first third of the movie. Um, <laughs> like. I'm not, I don't even feel like I'm rushing through it because we don't obviously sit here and go over word for word what everybody says, but it's just kind of like setting up. And I guess we get a scene of Nicole sitting at the front of the bus looking out a window. That's important. <laughs> yes, that's, that's where all the cool kids sit, the front of the bus looking out the window. Um, no, I think, I mean, you you really have uh, answered a lot of my questions uh, for somebody who's never seen this movie before because even though, it, I don't know, 20 years, Jamie pinches my cheeks, um, even though Aww. 20 years... The Fast most of that, Colin Hilding. She always <laughs> walks past you and rubs your head and gives you a kiss. Like, no. I final give her a little pat on the boobs next time. She wouldn't. <laughs> so you want? Ew. You don't even know what they are. Uh, oh, she said maybe later. Uh, <laughs> Jamie's like, woo! First time in 10 years of marriage. They're getting touched. <laughs> but, but I mean, there's things I remembered about this movie, even though it took almost 20 years for me to watch it a second time. So... It's these things that you're picking up on like, oh, well, like, was he supposed to have been the one who caused this because maybe he slammed into the bus or, or did Dolores do this because she's driving so erratically? <laughs> like that that really that really is kind of the point of the movie. Like they, because that's what this genre is known for. They want you to be thinking those things. And then the fact that it doesn't pay off is almost more satisfying that, that it ends up being something completely different um, and that we don't really get answers from it. But uh I mean, the timeline's going all over the place. Uh, a couple things just to touch on. Uh, first, um, with uh, Driscoll, uh, Alberta, uh, I was going to call her Alberta Green, but that was the character they named her. Alberta Watson. 
with uh, her and the affair, I really don't think that it it is because you know her and her husband are fighting. Because I mean, her and her husband are fighting because they just lost the child. And these time shifts all over the place show us that this affair has been going on long before that. I mean, they were sleeping together before the kid died, and and we don't really get any indication that there's anything wrong with her husband, other than the fact that he's obviously got a little bit of an attitude and is kind of judgmental. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things I like about this movie is um, that there's no character, including the child molester, who doesn't have at least some type of sympathetic side to them, you know? Yeah, like, I think I just interpreted it as, like, when you find out that there's a fair, that, like, you only really see this her husband, like, once, and he's kind of mm-hmm. just in a... He's in a zone where, like, he's not likable at all. So, like, to me, I just kind of interpret that of you've got it, like somehow excuse infidelity because all we've seen of the husband is that he's a dick. So therefore you're going to connect more with Aaron Driscoll with Bruce. What's his face? Cause it's, you're feeling, Oh, these two are cute and she's got a horrible marriage. So this is okay. And and see, I was actually thinking about that this afternoon after watching the movie uh, about that is the expectation. Another expectation audiences have when they're watching a movie is, well, if it's a, a woman, cheating on her husband there has to be a reason for it and they're always looking for that reason but if it's a man cheating on his wife they're never looking for a reason but in reality there's probably well, i'm not going to say there's probably a reason one way or the other i'm saying you know it, it, it <laughs> we're not going to go there <laughs> but but the point being that you know it, it's it's not just a, a simple uh what's a well, cut and cut and paste is in the freedom of the uh it's it's not so you know great. It's Colin's gray. so uncomfortable talking about this, <laughs> this subject. <laughs> Colin, I'll change your mind. That tragically part- hip song sucked. Get angry. <laughs> and this isn't the part about the movie that I thought would be awkward talking about. about but uh, no, the the thing is, is that the audiences do expect. Oh, there has to be a reason why. But I think when you look at all the characters in this movie and the way they're all portrayed you're at least getting somebody's point of view, or in some cases you don't feel the need to have a point of view on it. It's just, you just, a lot of those looks that you're saying, like, actually, I think that's so much what adds to the movie is that you're just reading people's reactions and it would be a lot harder as an actor to do so much facial acting in a movie like this, where it's not so much dialogue. It's about those reactions. Look at Ian Holm in that opening scene, the car wash scene. Um, You know, first of all, the the conversation, the fact that his daughter is so bad, the, the actress is so bad, it almost in a way works for how awkward this conversation is. I'm in a I, car wash. But I oh, actually, I never talked to somebody. In a I'm car just going to jump on that. I think it kind of works that she's a drug addict, right? So yeah. you can, you can literally put down to her acting this way as she's on drugs. Like, so yeah. it's, it's the thing that I think works. It's jarring in that opening moment when she literally says, like, I've never talked to you in a car wash. We'll be like, what is like, I literally thought this was almost like brain candy for a second. Like they're doing this over the top <laughs> acting. But then when you find out like, and when he says like, I don't know what state you're in. I think that yeah. automatically clicks the switch where you're like, oh, okay, she's on drugs. That makes sense. Yeah, and and the way that he is watching his words with her too, yeah. like he's very careful. This is like a parent who has had to go out of their way to distance themselves from a child. So mm-hmm. he doesn't want to even be like, yes, how saying something like, how are you, would imply, oh, that means that he wants to help me. You know, he's basically being as cold as he can without being uncaring. It, it's great to watch the way that he reacts when every single scene they have together on the phone, she just starts screaming at him for no reason. There's like these things where he'll pull the phone away. You could see the eye roll without the eye rolling. And then be like, now, now, calm down a second. I'm only asking a simple question for this reason. You know, this is somebody who's gone through this so many times. Yeah. And Ian Holm, like for, for a guy who's never done a leading role like this, like this is, this is something that you need an actor with a lot of experience to do, to be able to show these types of emotions without it actually being written in the dialogue. 
Did he um, get nominated for an Oscar eventually? Like, didn't he? Uh, like I don't think Oscar, he did. No? I thought he something he got nominated no. for. No. Uh, okay. Or, you know, he might have. Um, I'm trying to think because Chariots of Fire was uh, one of the bigger movies he did, like, way back when. And he might have been nominated he for He was that. nominated. To... Uh, yeah, for Chariots of Fire. Best supporting actor. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So, but, but I mean, really, this is late in his career. And I don't think that he was, it was kind of this in the fifth element that got him back on the map again. You know, this is a guy who I, I guess Alien was his biggest success. And then it was, what, 20 years after that almost before this in the fifth element and Lord of the Rings kind of put him out there and he was you know a big star again. So I don't, I don't think he, he necessarily was like, Ian Holmes' name was going to lend a lot I, to this movie, but it, I, it's great when you get these older actors that get a big break like this lately. I know I've told this story to you before, but I just, I always, I, I really hope we do the fifth element one day because that is one of the most, that, like, we, we need to do, like, underrated, like, 97, 98 movies, like Starship Troopers, mm-hmm. fifth element movies that are amazing that I think get forgotten about. But um, I used to always think that Ian Holmes' character in the fifth element was played by Gary Oldman, and I always thought Gary Oldman's <laughs> character was somebody else. Like, for some reason... Whenever like I would see Gary Oldman, I'm like, oh yeah, he's the old priest in the Fifth Element. Like, just I just don't know why. And, and it finally, you, you were you were Trent queening it with a Liv Tyler there. Apparently, <laughs> like for just some reason, I just had this belief for so long in my life that that was Gary Oldman, and then it kind of like clicked them because I'm like, well, wait a minute, that evil guy Berg kind of looks very much like <laughs> Gary Oldman. So then it like it finally switched over that Ian Holm was his own man. Ian Holm was maybe, his own man. <laughs> maybe that's Gary Oldman's younger brother. Maybe the villain. <laughs> I love that movie. Oh. This is, uh, it's not 97, 98, that area, but uh, very much completely off base. Jamie and I watched Total Recall last night, like the Arnold oh, yeah. Schwarzenegger one. Yeah. Uh, and I saw a name in the credits where I'm like, who do they play in this movie? And I watched, I watched several scenes where they were, before I eventually went on Wikipedia, I'm like, I still haven't seen this person. Dean Norris is in Total Recall, and he has oh. a pretty significant role. Uh, Google Dean Norris boob. in Total Recall. Well, <laughs> and not far off. You Google <laughs> Dean Norris in Total Recall, you'll see why... It would take you in before you actually got have to hair? click on. It, oh, no, okay, but I can see he's got the face, yeah. right? Okay, yep, yeah, yeah, he's it. one of those weird Martian guys or mutated humans. I haven't but seen Total Recall like, in a oh. long time. Yeah, but yeah, it's a major role he had in there. Uh, but anyways, uh, so were you saying you don't like the the actual score of this movie? It's just, it's just, it's one of these movies where the music was just driving me crazy. Yeah, mm. see, I, I really like the score for this, but the the composer Michael Dana. He's sort of claimed as being Winnipegan, even though he lived here until he was like three years old or something like that. But uh, he had done a lot of Adam and Gawain movies. But there was um, a movie that Ang Lee made in the early 2000s or late 90s, even uh, before Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, that was uh, called Ride with the Devil. It was basically who's who of like 10 years down the road. So Tobey Maguire, Jeffrey Wright, Mark Ruffalo, Jonathan Reese Myers, like like Simon Baker, huge cast, but none Tasmania's of them time. Yeah, and this movie has a Simon Baker in it too, which I was wondering. I'm like, was he in this? But it's actually a different Simon Baker. Uh, but uh, he was Michael still in Dana, at this point, Simon Baker. He was still hanging out in Tassie, probably in 1997. But uh, yeah, Michael Dana, who did the score for that Ang Lee movie, I and mean, the score for that Ang Lee movie, Ride with the Devil, was so good. I actually bought the soundtrack, and he finally won an Oscar for Life of Pi years later. But uh, Michael Dana is such a unique composer, and. You know, we can call him a local guy here, I guess, technically. So, sorry to interrupt again. Simon Baker actually was in L.A. Confidential that year. I didn't realize he was in L.A. Confidential that year. He was, um, yeah, I think in, in, in L.A. Confidential, I'm pretty sure he was like the washed-up star who had a drug bust who right. they ended up setting up with a gay man as like a prostitute or something. Well, I, he, and, 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 I wanted to watch that. And shut up, Misha Barton. Simon Baker went via home and away. Uh, so, <laughs> like Simon Baker's literally, if you heard Simon Baker returns to Australian TV and Neighbours, you'd be like, yeah, okay, fair enough. Like, um, whereas like, <laughs> sorry, I still can't get over it. <laughs> <laughs> Random. Um, 
But uh, no, I, I really do love the score for this movie. It, it's very unique. It, it's not something that I would go out of my way to listen to this style of music. So I'm kind of with you on that. Like when you mentioned Bob Dylan, I almost gagged. Uh, my mom's favorite <sighs> singer of all time, which I can't stand. Get off the roof of the car, Mom. <laughs> Bob Dylan. <laughs> Blowing in the wind, no. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Jesus! Colin on fire with the sex jokes today. Uh, anyways, though, I, I like the the whole car wash, the awkwardness of like the audience doesn't even know, and then he just gets out in the middle of the car wash. Um, the um, the the Nicole or Sarah Pauly singing I, again. I don't remember. I, there are two songs she sings. I don't think this is the tragically one. I think that is the one that plays. It does play during the end credits, but I don't think that um, she's actually playing it here. Uh, but I found it weird. Like this is a very small town, like extremely small. And this festival, how did she get that massive banner yeah. with her face on multiple? This is something that like the tragically hip probably had that on their stadium tour in 97, but I don't think that Sarah Pauly at the local fair. She's that have a famous banner in that town <laughs> that she deserves a banner. She is that town's Britney Spears. And like, why is Bruce Greenwood not playing there? You see the one scene of him on guitar. I mean, this is the guy you need. You don't need this folk singer Sarah Pauly there. You need Bruce Greenwood there, you know, doing a slash bit on guitar or whatever too, he does. Too, too busy on. banging CTU, heads of <laughs> <Yeah>. CTU. <laughs> um, interesting note on um, Bruce Greenwood, though. This role, uh, it wasn't originally going to go to, but the actor who really wanted it was Paul Gross, who is the writer, director, producer, and star of Men With Brooms we covered years ago. Mm -hmm. And a huge box office right here in Canada. Like, this would have been like his first movie because he was still doing his TV show called Due South at the time where he played a Mountie. Uh, but Paul Gross, uh, Adam Agoyan rejected him because he said he was too handsome and they couldn't make him look rough enough. <laughs> so basically Bruce Greenwood, who also has a reputation of being like Mr. Hollywood handsome guy, I mean, he was that double Jeopardy movie he did with Ashley Judd, mm. where he was basically playing the man that could get any woman. He played JFK in a movie. Um, it, it, Bruce Greenwood does an incredible job of, I'm not going to say ugling himself, but just make himself look very you know, so ugly. Small town, auto mechanic, you know, just just not like Hollywood hunk. Uh, but I, I, I totally agree. Paul Gross is one of these guys where you're like, he's just too darn handsome to make ugly. <laughs> I couldn't see him pulling this off, but uh, he really apparently wanted this role. Um, Dolores is the most quirky, fun character in this movie by far. Uh, I, I just love all the intro scenes she has. Uh, I can't remember if it's here where, uh, yeah, I think it is in this sequence here where Bear's parents put him on the bus, like the hippie parents put him on the bus. And uh, well, they, they make a, a joke about uh, the painting that he had. Uh, oh, they, we're going to donate this to the bazaar or whatever. She goes, oh, it's bizarre, all right? <laughs> and I just love the dad who just bursts <laughs> <laughs> and it's like wow that was not a good joke but he just loved it uh but even the way she interacts with the kids i mean it feels very authentic like you're saying like this is your stereotype of north american bus drivers or lunch ladies or whatever yeah. small town i mean i've lived in a couple small towns and i could say they're stereotyped for a reason yeah because this is pretty accurate you know uh but i love the way that she's like joking around when they arrived at the the fair where she's Telling the kids, all right, rule number two is you you stick with your buddy. And rule number three is uh, no punching and kicking, no biting. And rule number four, wiggle your noses and have fun or whatever. Uh, she's just a, a really fun character, which makes it hard to watch the scenes later on where you think, oh, are they pinning this thing on her or whatever? Um, and, and yeah, the, the opening scene with Driscoll and her husband, we're just going to call her Driscoll. Uh, yeah. <laughs> even though there's another Driscoll in this movie. Uh, Aaron Driscoll from CTU, the, the opening scene with her husband. Like, again, this is one of these things where it's like, it's you're seeing how all the different families grieve differently. 
And you're also seeing Ian Holm as the lawyer here because not so much in this scene, but in the, the scenes that come up, every person he approaches, he has a completely different, he approaches it like a salesperson. But there's still some sincerity to everything he says. Like with them, you know, it, it, it's it's very straightforward. It's like, listen, this is what I want to do. I think somebody should be held accountable. And when he sees how divided this, this couple is, he's like, okay, well, I'm going to have to play to each of them here. I, I love, though, the um, the, the husband here, Maury Chaikin. He's... Uh, Maury Povich. Maury Povich, that's right. We talked about the last week. He's one of these guys that, like, he's been in lots of American and Canadian things. Um, the movie War Games with Matthew Broderick, I, I think we almost talked about doing that for anniversary month this year he was in that um mystery alaska with russell crowe he played like the town lawyer that has like this incredible scene with this huge speech that he gives to be able to get them to keep the the hockey game in the town uh a f- amazing actor and and it's funny because he's really is only in this one scene maybe two scenes but he, like he's on fire and they're saying like every actor is not really how you delivered. like him on fire but no I, i'd love to see him burn <laughs> uh but uh i mean he he's incredible in this scene and i i, I love the way that like every time she mentions a name, he's like, oh, well, she'd go down for a bag of peanuts and a pat on the head, you know? <laughs> uh, oh, and not, not this person, he's the town drunk. Like, he's just the negative. I'm sure every couple has that. They have the one nice person and the one mean person. Um, Which one are you, Colin? Is, well, funny thing is most people think that Jamie is the nice one, which is actually the opposite. She's the one who like judges everybody who walks past our house. It's like, what are they doing there? Look at that. that person looks suspicious. I don't like the looks of those kids over there. And I'm the one who's like, come on, give the benefit of the doubt. They're just kids out playing or whatever. Uh, but I mean, it, it's great that they have all these people that they're rejecting. But important thing to note of what's going to come up later is that when they're saying, oh, what about these people? And he's like, no, 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 she's she's a whore and he's a, a drunk. And oh, no, not, not these people. They're they're drug addicts. The one that he actually pauses, he has that really great pause, which says, oh, what about the, whatever Bear's parents are? What about them? And he's like, huh. like he wants to say something bad. And he's like, yeah, you got me there. <laughs> <laughs> he's like stumped. But the funny thing is, is that uh, they they run through all these people of who you shouldn't, you know, oh, this is all the baggage that they would bring. And yet it's actually them and even um, Sarah Pauly's family that bring the baggage. Now, nobody finds out about that, but I think that's one of the interesting subtle themes in this movie is that mm. we need to pick the people who are going to be the least confrontational, but those are the people who actually bring down the whole lawsuit in the end, which is uh, interesting. Um, was there anything else? Yeah, the, the plain conversation. I mean, yeah, they, they literally cut directly from the calendar to the date on the bottom of the screen on the news or whatever on the plane. That's a clever little trick. How it worked in the nineties. That's how time changed. You woke up one day staring at (laughs) a calendar, woke up staring at a screen. Oh, fucking 18 months has gone by. But I mean, you have to think like that. That's probably necessary in 1997, like pre memento and pre, you know, Christopher Nolan to actually explain to audiences this movie is taking place well, all over the place. Yeah, and like I guess that worked for me because like I legitimately when I saw that calendar saying like December 95, that's like initially I was just like okay, well this is based on a real story, so that's when the event actually happened. Like I knew this yeah. movie was like a 97 movie, but that's kind of just um you know, cuz there are certain like like I think we talked about it way back when when we did Greece. Like I legitimately always thought Greece was like made in the 50s because like it was like set mm-hmm. in the 50s i didn't actually realize it was like made in the 70s and set in the 50s if you know what i mean so yeah. like kind of sometimes you have an interpretation of certain things being a certain way mm-hmm. like i think even like with um nitram that we talked about like a year a bit ago like I, I don't think you ever flat out distinguish that that is set in the mid 90s when the port arthur massacre happened but like it's just kind of like you just imply it you know what i mean 
Well, I'm Pulp, Pulp Fiction is an interesting example. Like, does mm. anybody really know when that movie takes place? Is it supposed to take place in the seventies? Supposed to take place in the nineties? So long. Like, I know next year we've committed to a Jim Carrey anniversary month, but I mean, we really mm. should be doing Pulp Fiction. Well, what an excuse! But um, like, God, I, I really need to rewatch that movie. Make it anniversary year. Just skip all of our other months. Um, yeah, the the interesting conversation he has with um Zoe's friend on the plane too, the way that like he doesn't give up information. Like, I, I almost feel like this lady is probing. Because she's like, oh, yeah, so how is Zoe? And he doesn't actually answer her. He just, um, um, excuse me, miss, he doesn't answer. And then when they cut back to them after you know, another scene and it comes back, she goes, so I'm glad to hear that Zoe's doing well. And then he just, again, doesn't say anything. And that's when he's like, yeah, so she's like kind of not doing well. <laughs> I didn't mm. say she was doing well earlier. Uh, I, I love the way that like he intentionally leaves out information. But I think she's just sort of pumping for give me some details. I want the gossip or whatever. Uh, are you talking about the um, scene where they're the first deposition of Dolores? Yeah, that phrase you did cover that, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah, good old Nick Bracey Dolores here. Yeah, uh, I I like the little detail of all the kids' pictures behind her. Like again, like this movie's making it really hard to blame anybody because <laughs> the characters who technically could be at fault are the likable ones, and the ones who really aren't at fault in any way are the ones that you see like these unpleasant things about them in their personal life. Uh, but uh, this is the second mention of like the hippie parents before he actually goes that you haven't talked about them yet. Right. When he goes to their no, house. No, trust me, we'll, yeah. we'll get to monobrow one and monobrow <laughs> two. But uh, yeah, she mentions it. And I think earlier on when um, Alberta Watson and Maury Chaikin were back and forth thing about them. And it's like, well, they're just a little bit eccentric. Like, well, they're hippies. Well, are they drug addicts? You know, it's just this small town mentality. It's like, oh, these people are kind of a little bit, you know, a little bit unusual. So they must be hippies. Cause right here, when Ian Holmes questioning Dolores and asking about like bears parents, uh, she's like, they're what I think you would call hippies. And he goes, what do you mean by that? <laughs> Which almost sounds weird. It's like, um, are you familiar with this? You look like you were alive then buddy, but it's actually, I think he's trying to figure out why did, what does this small town classify as hippies? Cause they're really not, they're just like artsy people or they're, I guess, beat hipsters. More than it. they're hipsters, yeah, beat Nikki, but not hippies. But uh, that's just another little small detail. It's like everybody here just calls them the hippies because they're the one unusual family that doesn't like fit the norm. I think they're just from BC. Um, this is a very BC thing. <laughs> I live there, so that's just they're, they're from Vancouver Island. Um, which I'm looking here where it's filmed, and the, I've never been to the town where these are filmed, but yeah. Um, so let's cover another chunk of the movie here. So we're back on the plane, back on the... What's that? Back on the train gang. That was a song here in Australia, not back on the plane gang. Wrong one, Ben. So, yeah, this is a bit where she's all like, hey, so she's okay. Oh, I never said that. And then kind of he's just going in a little bit more to the... So is this... Is this meant to be after he's left the town? Because yeah. I know, like, when so, he gets off the plane at the end and we see Dolores, it's kind of like that's the big, like, oh, she's still driving a bus. So this... I, I was trying to work out, is this on the way to the town or away from the town? Yeah, so I think if if you follow... Some of the stuff takes place before the bus crash, obviously, mm-hmm. like in the fall. Then you get the bus crash. And then when the case sort of falls apart at the end of the movie, it's almost winter again. So I think we're looking at 95, 96 is when the movie takes place. And then the plane ride is of 97. Course, so this is December like, 97, right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Durban. Um, <laughs> we get like an interesting scene here where Ian Holm doesn't want shrimp touching his food. Um, <laughs> like... I'm all for that. I fucking hate seafood. So I'd be like, get it off my plate. I love this woman. That doesn't really me leave much food on the plate, sir. And he's just like, well, let's see what we get, shall we? Yeah. 
I didn't realize people could be that picky on airplane food because airplane food is generally... I actually don't mind airplane food. Everyone gives it a bad rap, but anyway. So he's now off to meet the um, uh, Mono Brown or one, Mono Brown or two. I love their cabin though. Like I'd love like... I'm oh, a, yeah. I'm a city person. Like, don't get me wrong. I love living in big cities and that sort of stuff. But like, I would love to live in like a log cabin like this in the middle of like the snow. It'd be cool. Literally. <laughs> um, so we rock up to this house and we meet the hippies uh, and like pluck some eyebrows. Love and love it. Like, I mean, seriously. Um, so he's going to talk them into it. And there's a lot of tea being offered in this movie. Um, so they're all getting tea. And uh, like... So these two are photographers. Are we meant to imply they're a bit off because there's like I naked children on the wall? I, I mean, they're artists. They're still they're, naked children. I think they even mentioned they're, they're very like graphic artists. You know, not graphic in that way. <laughs> I say children, that to the cops, children. and I still go to jail. Oh, I'm just I'm an artist. <laughs> no, but yeah, I think that they're just supposed to be you know kind of artsy people. Sure. Okay. Um. So he's talking them into. I guess, coming on board with a lawsuit. And this is where we find, like, again, where I'm thinking, like, is he a bit shady? Because he's all like, oh, like, I'll do this job and it won't cost you a cent, but I get a third of the fee. So, like, this is where I'm, like, thinking, like, okay, this dude's shady. He's trying to, like, push for, like, a, you know, $50 million lawsuit so he can get the money. And, like, this is a real thing that lawyers do. Like, you always see the ads, like, no win, no fee. And there's, like, 50 Mm -hmm. asterisks and hashtags at the bottom of, like, underneath there's, like, administration fees and all this kind of stuff because otherwise how... There's a word for it. Um, Shady. Pro bono. (laughs) Well, no, pro pro bono. I I think pro bono is different because pro bono is when they legitimately work for free. Like, that's for a community. Like, I will do this for free. This is, like, commission. Yeah, whereas, like, it's... Generally, that's how... Like, I I know a lawyer, but, like, I don't really talk about law stuff with her, and she does, like, different things, and she's rich and a politician now, so good for her. But, like... um, I just never get that whole, like, yeah, if we don't win, no fee. Because, like, deep down, like, you're hiring a lawyer to win. But at the same time, you're like, well, at least I lose. I get it for free. Um, so these two are on board. He ticks that off the list. Win and win a chicken dinner. Um, he's still talking to this woman on the plane. Again, please come back through this with anything that I'm skipping over in terms of the dialogue. Because there were parts of this movie where there was a lot of talking about things where I don't think it really added to the plot. And I was Some tuning of it out. was women. So Ben was not listening. <laughs> yes, there was no boobs. Um... <laughs> So there's a scene here with... Uh, so Nicole is the babysitter of Bruce Greenwood's children. Yeah. Because I thought before we get this weird scene shortly that Bruce Greenwood was like banging everyone in town. So I thought it was going to be implied that he was banging Nicole as well. So like there's kind of this bit here where he's with she's with the kids. And he's there playing his guitar. Was that a tragically hip song too, Colin? Like uh, No. <laughs> just, just checking. Then we get Bruce Greenwood showing up to the motel and we get Alberta Watson showing up in the most ugliest lingerie in the world. I'm sorry, if that's meant to be sexy, I'm glad I didn't live in the 90s when I was having sex because holy <laughs> fuck, that's ugly. Um, like the, the freaking panties like up to the stomach and like, what is that? Um, small small towns are very much like five to ten years behind at the times. Like it's a notorious thing in small towns. You go into it, it's like, well, everything here looks like it belongs. You know, it, right now we'd be saying this looks like 2013. But uh, yeah, this is, I think, more of an 80s look than a 90s look. But, but even then, like you live in Winnipeg. I grew up in Hobart. Even there, like 10 years behind. So, you know, uh, you, you'll get color television one day, Colin. Don't worry. It happened in Hobart. <laughs> um, so I, I do like the, the bit, though, like maybe the funniest part in the movie is when he's all like, hey, so how long is your husband going to be? Oh, whenever the game ends. Oh, the game's on! And, like, turns it on. <laughs> that, and, that's how you know it's Canadian. Yeah. Like, again, like, 
Uh, like, which, uh, which is, it's, I mean, we always have these stereotypes that are true, but I just like, I do love the overabundance of hockey. Like, we, every Canadian movie we've covered has been hockey references. Maybe not um, I think Dead so. Ringers. Treat and, Murray. No. Yeah, I guess that was in a park. Um, <laughs> 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 but, but, but to play into the stereotype, I wasn't joking. I turned on the Leafs and the Lightning right now, and it's currently tied 2-2 in the second. Oh, come on, Maple Leafs. Get your act together. Um... So they're going to be banging during the game. Meanwhile, Nicole's reading for the first time we get the Pied Piper. So don't know if this is meant to be a subtle reference. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's kind of like the other week in Tomorrow When the War Began. Of, hmm, let's stare at the invasion by Captain Cook and the Australians and connect the dots. Like we talked about that with the castle, like in the first year we did this. Like that is a very subtle movie in a way about like, you know, land rights issues in Australia. Whereas this, it's kind of like, Hey, so remember that story about the Pied Piper when he got shitty at the town folks and we took the kids away? Like, I I don't know. Like, I felt it was a bit like, okay, we get it. Kids died and then, you know, they took it away. But actually, I'm not one for, like, like little shit actors and all sorts of stuff. But this little boy here, like, I kind of like his little speech here where he's just kind of like, well, hang on a minute. If he had magic, why didn't he just make the town folk pay the money? She's all yeah. like, um, because she wanted to punish them. This reminds you of the Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> they got fairy dust. That's that's Peter Pan, Dad. Which can we just point out when we do in the freaking um uh, uh our Patreon episode on the Santa Claus? Because that pisses me off. The fact that they're talking about like magic and they like dismiss it in the Santa Claus. Yet in the TV series, they're like, yeah, we've got magic. Like, shut up. Um, some problems. Yes. Uh. So anyway, that's kind of like shoving a bit of the Pied Piper down your throat. And then we get the most disturbing scene in this movie. No, it is not the bus crashing into the water. No, it is not the weird scene, which I still don't get, of, like, Nicole with the dad. It is Alberta Watson walking into the room naked. Now, like, you know sometimes when you like an actress or you just get used to an actress in a certain way that you never, or an actor, and you never look at them in a certain way, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I've talked about how Jamie Lee Curtis reminds you of my mum. So I cannot yep. watch that famous scene in True Lies and not feel incredibly uncomfortable. Like this for some reason, because I see her as like Aaron Driscoll into a sort of like, this, you know, strong, powerful, like great character. Never. So like when you all of a sudden get a naked scene, like Kevin Bacon, I love Kevin Bacon, but like not in that way. When you watch Wild Things and oh, there's Kevin Bacon's dick. You're like, oh, how do I meant to react here? Nice dick, by the way. But anyway. Like, this is one of those scenes where you she's... see it in Adam McGoyan's Where the Truth Lies. Like, she, she sort of walks out and, like, you, it's kind of one of those bits where, you know, sort of smartly in movies they'll cover bits like they're naked but they, you never see anything, right? Like, this yeah. is one well, of those... you see. Like, I thought here that was it because she kind of walks in and she's kind of on the side so you kind of... And she's covering her nipples and you're kind of like, okay, fair enough, she's covered. And then all of a sudden, bush, nipples, <laughs> everything. She's laying on the bed and I'm like, whoa, I don't know how to feel about this right now. Um... But so she's all like, hey, big boy, see you later. And he's all like, yep, cool, great, bye. Um, and then this is the scene where we get sort of Bruce Greenwood with Nicole and sort of he gives her like a bunch of clothes. Like whose clothes are these? Like his ex-wife or his something? His wife. So yeah. he's, is his wife dead or just left? She dead? died. Right, okay. Rip Bruce Greenwood's wife. So he's all like, cool, have some clothes. And this is literally where I thought like, well, he's gone home and banged Aaron Driscoll. So he's going to go home and bang Nicole here. Because she has a, like, I don't get the scene where she's like getting dressed and then putting us, is she might dressing up for a dad here or something? Like, yeah. I don't Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then like, like, honestly, like, I just didn't get this next scene because like, she's all like, 
pulling up in the car with this guy who, again, like, I'm like, I know it's her dad, but it's kind of like, okay, is it really a dad? Maybe she's just calling him daddy because, you know, reasons. So they rock up, they get out of the car, they have these really awkward, like, 20 minute stare at each other where she's like looking a bit like, oh, like, you know, this is whatever. And he's all like, hey, hey, like, you know, we're in a barn. And then she's flicking through like the book. It's kind of connecting with the Pied Piper. And then all of a sudden we get this scene where there's candles, there's guitars, there's blankets, and they're making out on the bit. I'm like, wait, wait, like that's her dad. Like what? Like what is happening here? And this is where like I think I'm even more confused where I read the synopsis of this because according to the synopsis on Wikipedia, it's saying she's being sexually abused, right? So like this is where I'm confused and this is going to come across a certain way, but bear with me, like, this doesn't look like she's being abused. I get it she's being abused because she's underage, he's a dad, you know, he's an influence. I understand why that is abuse, not just a standard of I'm going to pin you down and do things to you. But, like, then later on, like, we never sort of get any real implication from her that, like, he's abusing me, help. Like, I don't know. Like, for some reason, I thought this was just a consensual relationship where it's just weird that she's fucking a dad and then we've just got to, we've just got to know that knowledge. Like, I just... This is why I rewinded it a couple of times. I just, I didn't get this. And please film the gaps in here for me. I mean, I'll agree with you. Again, it's one of these things where it's like, is it a double standard that you do view it differently if it's like, if it's consensual, but it's still his daughter? Like, It's still abuse because worse? she's underage is, and yeah. you would argue and, it's, you know, like, yeah. And I mean, ultimately what this movie I feel like explains and, and kind of what you're looking for, it's in a scene much later in the movie, which we'll get to, where he kind of explains... Uh, he doesn't really explain anything. She sort of explains it in a very subtle way. But I, I feel like this is very much he has flattered his daughter, made her feel important, and essentially seduced his own daughter. She is willingly going along with it, but it is still manipulation and it's still yeah. abuse. Screaming. Uh, which which you have. Yeah. And, and you do kind of have a bit of a payoff to that later on. And I think it's another thing you just take into account. This is a very small town. Like, um, when we start on the school bus, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm simply saying when you see her on the school bus, there's nobody else her age, you know? So mm. I, I doubt that there are a lot of, I think it would be very different, uh, if they were in Winnipeg or Hobart, even all the dating apps, this- mom, sister, cousin, <laughs> no, sorry, is it, this is exactly what it's like in Hobart, my mistake, but, uh, I think that's that's part of the thing with this like being very small town is like, could he legitimately be the only guy who's given her that type of attention? Therefore, she's sort of reciprocating it, you know? Yeah, look, I, I think it is one of those bits where, and I applaud this movie where you could have gone a different direction because like, I'm again, this is my reading of the movie that she obviously at the end lies about Dolores because she's getting some punishment against like her dad and these people because- mm-hmm. They know she's lying, right? But there's nothing really they can do because there's also he then doesn't want her, like, their relationship to come out. So, like, I think there's that layer of yeah. she gets it back. But it's it's sort of I like the fact that it's not so obvious in your face. that In her deposition, she's like, and my daddy touches me. Like, you know, and <laughs> yeah. kind of like, arrest that man. Like, I literally thought there was going to be the, the scene when we get Bruce Greenwood confronting her parents. I thought, like, we were going to get a... I know what you do with your daughter. If you don't like come forward, like I will tell people like, I thought that's where that was going. Um, but like, I like it where it's kind of subtle enough. And even in that scene at the end, when he's like sitting on the bed with her, like I'm thinking like, he's going to try something here and then she's going to stand up mm-hmm. to him finally or something, but it doesn't happen. Like, so I don't know that's where like it, I like it, but it just, I, it took me a bit to like, I like what? Like this is like, and I legitimately at this point, like, well, maybe it isn't a dad. 
Maybe like that was just yeah. it's like lost. Stepdad, yeah. Like how like boyfriend. Boone and freaking Shannon hook up, right? And he's kind of like, mm-hmm. oh my god! But then you realize they're actually only just like step siblings. So yeah, they know. milked that for a while. Ah, <laughs> oh, Boone, what a man! Boone should have played Nicole. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we'd all want to sleep with Ian Summerholder, so you know whatever. Um, but anyway, so it, it's it's but it's creepy. But it, sure, okay, incest again. I'm looking at this going like so. Um, so then is this where we get the bus crash? Is it? So I think we've got like Nicole on the bus with uh little Johnny here, whoever he is. Dolores is drinking a coffee with the neck brace. Um, and she sort of, I think this is where she's telling the tale of like what Alberta Watson bringing her kid to the front of the bus. Cause he's like a bit nervous. I feel sorry for this kid. Just like, you know, late nineties brushing off. Oh, he's just having one of his mornings. Like poor little kid doesn't want to get in the bus. He's missing his mum. So she's, he's sitting with uh, Nicole here. Because is Nicole the only survivor? Is that kind of what it's implied? Of the kids, yeah. So her and Dolores are the oh, only course, ones that well, we know of. Dolores survived. So this is when, again, I'm still questioning how we, she didn't already crash already because we cut to Dolores <laughs> looking at the window. Oh, I love my job. Wheels on the bus go round and round. Um, we've got old Bruce Greenwood driving here and then we get the crash. So we see it's... It's done in a way that I'm thinking like budget reasons, like because you don't kind of like you just got this like facial expression of Bruce Greenwood, where he's like ho ho ho, and then you kind of see a bus just go slightly off the road, to which then you see Dolores go like whoa 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 whoa, and then you cut to like this long shot of a decently special effect bus on a lake. <laughs> I mean, it's very late '90s. You can tell they didn't have much of a budget scene, but it also yeah. it's better than Kill Phil. Um, which I actually wasn't expecting to see this scene. I thought that this was just going to be one of these ones where it's like it's fully implied and you never see it, right? So that, they, re- they reveal it in stages too, which is yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, then we can sort of get a shot, sort of flashback to naked children in bed with Bono and Edge. Um, <laughs> Ian Holm having a discussion. And this is where he tells a story about um, his daughter, I guess, sleeping on a bed of black widows. Again, like, why is that a shock? Australia, like, we just go to bed filled with mattresses with spiders. Like, I mean, so many things in this I movie. I thought about you when I heard that part. I'm literally just like, so? Like, <laughs> sitting on this couch filled with spiders and snakes, you act like it's a bad thing. Um, And he's sort of telling this story about how she was, like, allergic and was about to die and that he was willing to do anything to save his daughter. He was literally about to cut into her throat to perform a trigger, trigger whatever they're called, which, like... Tracheotomy. Like that's a trigonometry. A trigonometry. trigonometry. <laughs> Is that Mr. Bean one when he goes to the exam? Actually, I focused yeah. on. <laughs> what are we covering, Mr. Bean? Um, oh, I would do that. Love that show. Um, but like, I, you always see that trope sort of in movies. Like I know Third Watch did it fifty thousand times. ER, any medical type show. I'm sure Grey's Anatomy is up to eight hundred and seventeen versions of this, where it's sort of like we're gonna save their life. We're gonna cut their throat. Like. Yeah, if I'm with somebody who I care about, which at this point in my life, not really. If I'm with Kevin Bacon or Kiva Sutherland or Natalie Portman, and they're like, if you don't do this, they will die, I would be still hard-pressed because I'd just cut into someone's throat. I'd be shaking like, oh, cut their jugular. Like, I'm not going to ask you if you would do this because I know you're less caring than I am. Um, but, like, I don't know. Like, I get it. But, like, it's kind of a, it's a, it's an interesting scene. Um, Bruce Greenwood walks away from the crash. Um, he has a bit of a chat with um, Aaron Driscoll here about the lawsuit. And uh, is Aaron Driscoll meant to be like dumb? Like, I don't know. Like, I think those her characters like not all there. Like, is that? Um, um, I mean, I didn't really pick up on that, but I mean, they do mention that they're, they're 
child is a little bit slower. So maybe just maybe it's supposed to be gets it from the mom. I don't know. Uh, we get a scene. This is the first time where we see Nicole survive the crash as so she's in a wheelchair. Uh, and then we sort of hear that they're talking to a lawyer. We meet the mum for the first time, who I swear is like Canadian Linda Hamilton. Uh, well, can, Linda Hamilton is Canadian, isn't she? No, she is. She I is. Think. Okay, well, is, this is, is it James Cameron. No, I may be thinking, uh, I know Jim Cameron is. Maybe uh, this is like, uh, if, if she's not Canadian, this is Canadian Linda Hamilton. And if Linda Hamilton is Canadian, she's diet Linda Hamilton, because I swear she's, this She's not. Okay, so this is Canadian Linda Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> she just looks a bit Linda Hamilton-esque here. I don't know if you picked up on that. They're all like, hey, we're talking to a lawyer. Look at this computer. We just got given it. Again, hence why I'm thinking Ian Holmes a bit shady. She's just like buying mm. the, buy, he is buying like the children like computers. So it's kind of like, okay, sure. Um, there's a, a long scene here where basically he's talking to Nicole about what happened. And I think this is a scene where maybe I tuned out a little bit. So I'm trying to remember exactly what he's saying. Is he like trying to say to her, it wasn't Dolores's fault and she's not agreeing with it. You can maybe fill that in a little bit. Uh, and I might go here just to the bit where uh, Bruce Greenwood threatens to beat Ian home up. Like I'm going to beat you so much till you bleed or something like that. Like drop this lawsuit. He said, do it. Uh, and like, you kind of mentioned that the sort of the makeup to make him look like a real standard small town man. And like, he's got the mm. tooth missing and all that kind of stuff. So it is a bit full on, but uh, he doesn't beat him up. Thank God. And mess up with Ian Holmes, beautiful face. <laughs> um, and I guess there's one scene here with Ian Holm on the phone to his daughter when she's all like, I want money, I want money. And he's all like, I'm Ian Holm, leave me alone. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I feel like I missed something important in this conversation with Ian Holm and Nicole at the table. So maybe you need to fill that in for me. Um, in for me, <laughs> this movie. But um, <laughs> yeah, so we've covered incest, Pied Piper, <laughs> naked Aaron Driscoll and beating someone to a pulp till they bleed. Standard. <laughs> I, I like the uh, the second scene on the airplane. Uh, again, subtlety in this movie, and especially the way Ian Holm delivers everything, where, where it's it's not so obvious what you're getting at, where uh, now you realize that this friend of his daughter's on the airplane uh, still knows about some of Zoe's problems because she says, yeah, I haven't seen her since the last time she was in that clinic. And of course, that clinic is obviously going to be rehab, right? And Ian Holm's response like, which clinic? Yeah. And she's like, oh, the clinic. He's like, there have been a lot of them. Like, <laughs> like it, it, again, it tells you so much about th this character and everything that you know, his backstory is, uh, but it's done so subtly. That's nice. Um, Bear's parents here, the, the hippie parents, um, yeah, I, they, they don't really factor into the rest of the story, which is interesting, which, again, coming back to what I was saying when they, they're during that first meeting with um, Driscoll and her, husband or whatever and they're bickering back and forth about no that this person is not good to go before a judge no this person is going to be picked apart they, they got all these personal problems uh they single out basically okay there's three families or four i guess like hey there's us there's nicole's family there's bruce greenwood and then there's bear's parents the ones that they keep debating oh but bear's parents they're kind of the weird ones those are the only ones in this movie that we don't get any type of dirt on throughout the rest of the movie so the only ones everybody was suspicious of are the ones that have nothing to hide really um but really by the time you get to the end of this movie you realize that yeah all these people have like some type of dark thing going on in their personal life that you probably wouldn't want to come out in trial but it never does come out in the movie which is interesting you know <laughs> this is just the, it's revealed to the audience that oh yeah this other stuff's going on but uh never to the other characters in the movie um, yeah, I, I love the pitch that he has to Bear's parents here. Like, again, the way that he pitched Driscoll is completely different. The way that he pitched Nicole's family is completely different here. 
you could actually see him like, I don't know what to say to these people. So he starts off. And then when he realizes that these people are kind of angry, but like sad, angry, he starts playing on the whole, you know, justice and somebody needs to pay. And then when the mother's like, uh, you know, I I want somebody to go to jail for what they did. First of all, you realize that he is manipulating these people. He's Mm. none of them are holding a grudge. None of them think like they should get anything, but now he's basically whipping them into this rage and these people are like, I want somebody to go to jail. And the way he kind of has to backpedal. Oh, there, yeah, so that woman, when she says that speech, yeah, I like that. Yeah. And he's like, well, nobody's going to jail, but these people pay in other ways. They pay with their pocketbook. Right. Uh, but yet there's still like, you see the lawyer and Ian Holm, but there's still so much sincerity. So especially in the scene uh, that you talk about with Bruce Greenwood later on, where he's trying to pitch him and he's saying, I want to direct your rage. And then he tells him about Zoe and, oh, I just wanted you to know that like, we've all lost children in some way. Like this is a guy who's going to this. And this is where it's realistic. Like where I said, you have to have some type of sympathetic side to even the the bad parts of all these characters. Ian Holm is kind of a shady lawyer. You know, he's doing shady things, but at the same time in his mind, he's doing this because he cares. He doesn't want other people to lose their children. He hand selected this case. He does care about these people. He's just also a lawyer and also a businessman at the same time. You know, it's not cut and dry. Cut and dry. That's what I was looking for earlier. <laughs> um, cut and dry. That's the phrase. Uh, but um, yeah, the uh, it's one of those things that just escapes me. Too like, excited. Oh, it's so cut and dry. There cut it is. dry. <laughs> I know it now, and I'm gonna forget it by the end of this episode. I'm like, what's it called? Like a uh, that's cut a closing piece? line. Yeah, I'm calling Hilding and yeah. cut and dry. Cut and dry. Now I got it. Um, let the scene with. Alberta Watson and Bruce Greenwood getting it on like it is such a Canadian thing is where it's like oh I've got until my husband's done at the game oh the game is on but it's not played for a laugh he actually turns on the TV and watches it you know yeah <laughs> such a Canadian thing uh, I'm with you like for one thing I definitely saw this movie before I saw 24 I mean I saw this movie before 24 ever debuted but it's not like when I saw 24 I'm like that lady was in the suite hereafter I she saw was her naked. <laughs> yeah but like even here, she's you know an older lady. I mean, middle ageish, right? Uh, I'm not, not judging in any way. I'm just no, I'm not judging in any way. But I'm like, this isn't like the 22 year old whipping it out, you know, in the middle of the movie. Uh, if you're a 16 year old boy or whatever watching it's this movie, 42. Yeah, okay. So a 16 year old boy watching this movie is not going to be like, boobs, yes. She's your age, right, aren't you? 42. Now, but not at the time. <laughs> That's from, that's kind of the point. She's of your age. Like, you're staring at her naked. That, 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 that's my point. The point is, is that now this would be like, okay, if I had never seen her in things like 24 when I was yeah. younger or this when I was younger, you wouldn't get that mom vibe. But like, in all honesty, like she's not a bad looking woman. And nah, her body's pretty good. Um, but you also look at it. It's like, oh, that's like your mom. You don't want to yeah, look, right? Exactly. Um, I, I love the way that uh, she's like every Canadian parent uh when uh she takes her son out like you said she even told that story to bruce greenwood i'm gonna take him out to the bus and he's not gonna want to go or whatever uh and when she does it the boy's doing exactly that but like when she goes out and dolores just sees her and she's in nothing but a house coat and slippers and she's trekking through the snow it's like aren't you freezing and she just sort of looks down and says well i guess my feet kind of are <laughs> I, I, i'm like that i mean a lot of canadians are like that my mom used to i don't think she would do it in the Careful. winter but she would do it, it in the winter. <laughs> it, it didn't matter whether it was like zero degrees in the fall. Like she would walk us to school barefoot. Um, but uh, I, I don't own a jacket. I, I think I have a jacket somewhere in storage. I just wear hoodies even in the winter. And people always be like, oh, aren't you cold? I'm like, 
I'm walking two minutes to my car and back. Like if I can't deal with this cold for two minutes, like, I don't. I don't. Is, it's. I mean, it's not the same thing. But yeah, since I've lived in Sydney, like now it's sort of getting quote colder by Sydney standards. Like literally the other day at the office, I was going downstairs and there was these two guys in my office who were putting on puffer jackets, and they're all like, "Oh, Ben, aren't you cold?" It was like maybe like 19 degrees Celsius, and I'm looking at them going like. Do you know where I'm from? Like, is it like I could yeah. be in shorts right now. I could go to the beach. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, like I mentioned, um, I can't remember if it was on an episode before when we went to the Bahamas and it was the overnight low was 18 degrees mm. and they were wearing those jackets in the morning. And they're like, no, I, we, we went to the mall before we saw this and we saw them selling all this winter gear in a store. I'm like, do you sell this for like the Canadians who are going home and then forgot to pack their, their yeah, living, warm clothes? Li- living in Brisbane, if it dropped below 20 degrees in winter, they would act like it was snow weather. So Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, she's a very Canadian mom here. Uh, but I mean, again, I like the detail that, you know, they're doing something. This would come out in the middle of the trial. It doesn't come out. But again, it's showing like, oh, there's a nasty parts to these people's personal lives. And again, we'd never get a motive. We never get her. Even in the scenes where she's with Bruce Greenwood, she doesn't say anything bad about her husband. There's even the one part where he's talking about, oh, what, what's going on here? He goes, oh, he recalked the tob. Oh, so I can't shower? Oh, go right ahead, right? Uh, like you get that this is like a decent guy. She has no problems with her husband. She just, you know, it's Bruce Greenwood. Why not? Right. Um, <laughs> it's on his Tinder profile. I'm Bruce Greenwood. Why not? <laughs> Why not? Right. <laughs> just put that on my Tinder profile. I'm Ben. Why not? <laughs> Why not? Right. Uh, I, I like what you mentioned about the, the bus crash because this whole time shifting does mess with your expectations. Cause you know, at the beginning of this movie, a bus crashed and then they'll cut back to scenes that are on a bus. And then, it's not when it crashed, you know, it's like, oh, it's going to be a different day. And, and even seeing like uh, Bruce Goody driving behind it. Like, I, I think that even supposed to be, I don't know if it's supposed to be the same morning or not. And then when you get the scene with Nicole right before her, her daddy date or whatever, where she's reading the book to the kids, they say, can I sit on the bus with you the next day? So I'm assuming, oh, is the next day the day of the bus crash? But it isn't because the next day is that day where, you know, Alberta Watson brings out her son and he says, can I sit with you at the front? That's the only way they got him on the bus. So it's all over the place and it actually is very effective because you know a bus crash is happening but you're not gonna know when it actually happens um those twins right at the back of the bus i actually thought about them like would this make it easier if kids didn't want to go to school mm-hmm. like uh, if they were afraid because i'm sure there's casper's not like this i remember the first time we weren't even sure how he would react we dropped him off at like it was a, a program but uh you know, daycare slash kindergarten program that he was in and the first day we dropped him off we're like, oh, is he going to be afraid because he's never really been away from us outside of like a daycare he used to go to? And they had a wagon there, which was just to bring like all the gear in for the kids. Casper jumps in there and they're like, oh, you're going to ride in that? And he holds up his lunch bag. He's like, I got lunch. <laughs> I was all excited. <laughs> Bye, mommy. <laughs> but I mean, I could imagine the twins. This will have to be us. It's like if they have to ride in the school bus, we're going to be jogging behind it. You know, oh, the lightning just scored. Oh. <laughs> Uh, oh, in real life. All right. Okay. I thought, I thought that's what you're saying. The twins would be doing. Like, no, 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 the <laughs> oh, I don't want to go to school. The lightning. The, 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 go Leafs. Go. Fucking I got asshole. Remy going. Go Leafs. Go the other night, by the way. <laughs> He's oh. into it now. Um, yeah. So anyways, uh, yes, that'll be my twins. I'll <laughs> jog behind the bus. Uh, but um, the, the near death story about uh, his daughter, too. Like the, the, the story ends. And again, it's a very long monologue he has. And Ian Holmes' performance is I- incredible. But little things that you probably don't even pick up on a first view that uh, this is one of the things that I picked up on only now, like the fourth time I've seen this movie is where at the end, he's talking about having to do the tracheotomy. And he says, I was caught between being the comforting daddy and being a surgeon. 
And I'm like, well, that whole daddy surgeon thing he's talking about, that's his, that's his story arc as the lawyer. He's, okay, am I the caring, you know, supportive lawyer who's there to help these people? Or am I the surgeon who's got to, you know, slit somebody's throat to get this done? It, it, it's it's a nice little parallel to the rest of his story. Um, uh, there was something else I want to talk about about Ian Holmes' character with his daughter. I can't remember what it is now. Um, she's a drug addict. That's what it was. Uh, oh, is she? <laughs> Oh. Yeah, that, that's that's not it. But uh, uh, oh, oh, yeah. So the the whole calm parent thing, they mentioned that, too, about they had to rush in the hospital. It's like, OK, which one of the parents is going to be calming? Mm. Um, the funny thing is, like, between Jamie and I, if the kids are if the kids are doing something where they're going to be in danger, Jamie's one that's like, Casper, put down the knife. And I'm like, Casper, you got a knife. You know, <laughs> I, I'm the one who like panics in that case. But yet. If the kids need comforting, like Jamie's basically like, Colin, you're doing this. I'm not, and it's not that she's bad at comforting them, but they seem to get mad when she tries to comfort them. <laughs> they don't get mad when I do. So if this ever happens, I'm going to have to be the death or the tracheotomy just because for whatever reason, the kids panic if Jamie tries to really, comfort them. Really, really so. fear for your neighbors. Basically, they're just hearing like, ah, oh, he's got a knife. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> knives to throats and tracheotomies and children dying it's very sad um <laughs> our neighbor doesn't care i guarantee it. is that misha barton <laughs> <laughs> i thought i just saw the lightning score again but i uh, didn't she, she doesn't realize she signed up for a tv show she's just like hey misha would you like to be in neighbors oh i could be a neighbor of someone okay uh, sign i haven't me up. had a neighbor in a while an australian <laughs> neighbor all right i need Borrow some milk. There's somebody right there next door. This is a perfect Fly scenario. Australia and like he's a script and she's like, "What are you talking about? Where's my house?" <laughs> uh, is it all houses on neighbors? Is it all supposed to be on a street or there? Yeah, so it's set on um, Randy Street. So it's like a little cul-de-sac. Um, it's, like, it's a real, yeah. it's a real life cul-de-sac in the suburbs of Melbourne. Um, which basically, I was reading the other day that the show got cancelled. So basically, if you live on that street, you had to sign like all these contracts of like, no, you you have to keep your bushes a certain thing. You can't do renovations without express written, <laughs> Alberta, <laughs> like uh, express written, like you know, consent of the TV networks, all this sort of stuff. So basically, they were going like, okay, cut, neighbors is cancelled. So everyone on the street is like, fuck, I've been wanting to build this fence. I've been wanting to put this satellite dish. Like they, they went to fucking town, and now they're all like, uh, so we want to come back and film. <laughs> so yeah, I, I love the fact that that's the the thing they're gonna have to deal with. Um, I, I don't know when we'll have another chance to talk about this, but uh, I did watch the wedding episode that you mentioned. Hey. Uh, second greatest, not the second greatest moment in Australian television, by the way. Was well, it the second greatest moment in television history? Like UK all and television. Yeah, something like yeah. that. Oh, oh yeah, and that one. Television. Yeah, the Australian one. You're right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I mean, I watched even one or two episodes prior to that just to kind of get the feel for all the characters and everything. Um, that that making the list sounds very Australian because I mean this was the most inconsequential wedding ever. Like TV weddings are usually very dramatic. This was basically they woke up the, the episode prior. I think somebody had a rash or something like that, or the measles, and they said, "Oh, maybe the wedding's gonna be delayed. Oh, just rest and you'll get over it." And the next scene, well, I'm over it now. Where there was our drama. The rest of like nothing happens with the I, wedding except for about we talked about all the montages in Australia, the movie last week. I swear it was like a music video and it was just people's faces smiling. You don't hear any vows exchange, I, nothing. And then the only thing a drama that happens in the entire episode is during one of the speeches, a mouse runs underneath a table. Nobody panics. A guy just grabs his, look, I got a mouse. And that's it. <laughs> I'll be completely honest. Drama. I've never watched the full episode. I've only ever just seen clips and all the stuff that yeah, I think it's just one of those things where like, you know, there, how there are movies that even if you haven't seen, you kind of know all the fame. Like when I saw Jerry Maguire, yeah. when we did that, like, it's kind of like, 
I've never seen this, but I think I know like the gist of what it is and all the famous bits of it, right? Mm. Like, so I think that's the case. I've never watched like the full episode, but I think the thing why it was so iconic was again, it's the eighties. And I think like, that's why Kylie Minogue just ended up being such a big, because like, you know, sometimes on certain TV shows, you just get actors who maybe in hindsight, their characters aren't great. Like George Clooney on ER, like, I mean, in hindsight, was Doug Mm. the greatest character? Probably not. But like, you know, Doug and Carol was such an iconic couple and they became so famous that that's what Neighbours was. So then like Kylie Minogue went on to be fucking Kylie Minogue after that. Jason Donovan to a certain extent. He was famous for about five minutes in the late 80s and early 90s. Nowadays, it's just like, haha, remember me? I'm Jason Donovan. Um, so yeah, anyway, but I think it's just the extent of Kylie Minogue was so fucking big at that point that she just was about to hit that stratosphere of stardom. Well, and you're right. I mean, weddings, even in the 90s, a TV wedding was such an event uh, but, you know, 70s and 80s, there was a, a spinoff of the Mary Tyler Moore show, not even the Mary Tyler Moore show, a spinoff of the Mary Tyler Moore show that had like an episode that was one of the top 10 highest rated episodes of all time that eclipsed anything the Mary Tyler Moore show had just because it had a wedding on it. You know, uh, there was uh, a soap opera. I can't remember. My mom loved it. All my children, General Hospital, one of those that had like a, a, a wedding in sometime in the early 80s. And it was like tens of millions of people watching daytime television, which never happens just because of a wedding. Like, yeah, that, that is a big deal. It, meanwhile, in Canada, we got Nicole sleeping with daddy. No wedding. Um, that's, that's our drama it's here. It's wheelchair characters. I mean, Drake in a wheelchair and Degrassi. Yeah, exactly. Like, we just, love wheelchair kids. That's <laughs> a cliche Canadian. Kids in wheelchairs. And they go on to great Actually, things. You know Drake goes on to win Grammys. Nicole goes on to win Oscars. I mean, come on. There you go. I, I, this is um, uh, not directly related to the movie, but I, I started watching this movie on its own, but then I wanted to uh, have something playing in the background. I'm on the treadmill. So I had it with subtitles, which was on the CBC app. And of course they have some ads, but the ads they kept having, I, I wrote it down here. What is it called? It was something Semitism, like bus of Semitism or something. But <laughs> <laughs> Summer of Semitism. That's what it is. Sounds like something some that would happen stage... in the world in World War II. <laughs> well, it, apparently it's some stage play that's happening, but the, the entire thing and the, the, every single commercial break that the street here after had on the app would cut to this summer of semitism, which is just a shot of a bus driving down the road. And it's like, these kids thought they were going to have the summer of their lives. They were dead wrong. And I'm like, this probably isn't the right one to play during a movie where a bunch of kids died, but you got me hooked. I want to see Summer Hitler of Semitism. was now. their camp counselor. <laughs> yeah. Hilarity in shoes. What happens at summer of semitism this summer <laughs> on CBC? I, I just want to know like who, who decided, okay, we want to... Put this on CBC Gem. <laughs> we want to have some advertising out there for this great place, Summer of Semitism. So what what programming do you think we should pair this with? Well, there's that movie about the bus crash and all the <laughs> kids dying, and we've got a bus in our graphic. That, that was, put it on the sweet graphic. I, I literally remember we had like uh, you know, one of the summers where we had all these, you know, terrible bushfires. Um, I think it was the one like in the late 2000s when about 100 odd people died in this like big bushfire. Anyway, so we've talked about, uh, I don't know if you know who Jessica Malboy is, but in, on Eurovision, Eurovision, she competed in, she was an idol person, big pop singer here in Australia. She had a song at one point which was called Burn. And then they had like a telethon for like, hey, let's raise money for the victims of the bushfires. She sang live on that episode, her song Burn, on an episode where over 100 people had been burnt to death by a bushfire. <laughs> I'm thinking, read the room, Jessica. Not a good one to sing. Um, here, I'll, I'll quickly wrap this up here so we don't go too long. Um, I, again, just Ian Holmes' approach to different people. I can't remember which parent is he was pitching here where he was basically saying, this is something that's going to be very important for later on. It's the fact they're not going after Dolores after questioning her 
probably seeing she's got this husband who's had the stroke. She's in, she clearly cared about the kids. This isn't the person to go for. But he also mentions earlier in the movie when they're saying, okay, so who's to fault for this? Is it Dolores? And he says, bus drivers are only insured for a couple million dollars. Like this isn't worth us going after her, which is going to be important later on. But he doesn't even give a firm answer. He says, someone's to blame. He says, I'm not sure who, why or when it happened, but maybe it was a loose bolt. I, I think that, that he that's talks about accidents. He's like, no such thing as accidents. There's no such thing as accidents. Yeah. And then the uh, you see how, again, very subtly, Alberta Watson's buying into this story when she's meeting with Bruce Greenwood the second time when he's saying, like, you got this lawyer and I don't want to have anything to do with this. Uh, and she says, you know, somebody's got to pay for this. She says, it was a loose bolt. And she's blaming that. She's not saying or something else. She says, there was a loose bolt. And he's like, are you kidding? I serviced the bus myself. There's no loose bolt. She goes, or it was a guardrail problem. Like mm. he, he's so suckered these people in with whichever way he decided to pitch them that in her case, he's basically convinced them something went wrong. But even though he's never coming right out and saying, he's basically saying someone's to blame. I don't know who, I don't know what it is, but it might be this. And yet she's a hundred percent firm. It was a bolt. And he's like, no, it wasn't. I serviced the bus. He goes, oh, okay. Then it was the guardrail. It was something. This is how Trump got elected. He sold these bullshit <laughs> to everyone, right? Like, oh yeah, the votes were rigged. Yes, they were. Like, you know, so Ian home, Donald Trump. It, pretty much the same people. Yeah. Uh, did you talk about the scene where Nicole comes home yet or not yet? In the wheelchair. Yeah. That was the bit where I oh. like, I, I'm like, I don't get, I can't remember what they talked about at this table with the computer. Yeah. 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 Okay. So yeah, just before that, um, the Alberta Watson also mentions a Bruce Greenwood there about, is it true that you gave her like, one of your wife's sweaters and he's like are you trying to say that this is bad like, like again you're just getting the desperation for alberta watson's character that she's just looking for something to blame like she's blamed in one scene she's blamed the bolt the guardrail and when bruce green is about to walk out he goes you gave her one of your wife's sweaters and he goes okay so my wife died and she was wearing that that day so that means even like it, it, i kind of see why she was so nipped as a ctu director a few years later basically. <laughs> exactly <laughs> um but uh yeah the uh the scene where she comes home you start to see Ian a bit of that shift <laughs> to Ian's home. She comes back to Ian's home. Yeah, Ian's home. That's not the right button, but um, we'll go with it. Um, <laughs> the uh, the dad, Nicole's dad here, um, he's been in a couple things I've seen, but I, did, I honestly didn't know him from anything except uh, when I most recently watched it. He was in the movie Room, not The Room, not The Time and Why So One, the, the Brie Larson one that she won the Oscar for, which is apparently technically a Canadian movie. Uh, he plays like her stepdad. Uh, um, amazing. Maybe one of the best things in that movie room. Uh, so, I mean, he's still getting big roles even now, but I mean, apparently he's from Winnipeg as well, uh, but he's he's really good in this movie too. Uh, but I love the way that he plays this whole guilt because when they're bringing her home and they're taking up the ramp that he built, it's because look at everything your dad did. And he's like, yeah, do you like the color? She's not being, you know, unpleasant about it. She's like, it's okay. He goes, yeah, I'm not sure about the color. I think we should change it. The next time they cut back to the house, the colors, not only have the ramp has changed, but he's repainted their house to match the ramp. But she's not giving him an answer. And this is where you start to get more than a Cole and um, a dad relationship kind of being revealed here. Like when they're bringing her into her room and showing it off and everything, she's uh, like, oh, it's all right. And the, the parents are like, uh, is there anything missing? It's like, uh, yeah, there needs to be a lock on the door. Now she's defensive daughter, right? It's very different from before where it was like daddy. Because uh, you, you mentioned the scene earlier on where she was dressing up. Like, again, it, it's interesting to see somebody's seen the first time. I think you're meant to think, okay, Bruce Greenwood's going to be coming home anytime now. He's just banging some guy's wife. Now she's in her little skimpy dress checking herself out. You're thinking it's him. It's not the dad. But then you realize it's the dad. 
their relationship is very different. When they come home here, she's like, I want to lock for my door. But then watch what happens when the sister comes in and says, will I still be allowed to come in here? She goes, she's all nice to the sister, but she specifically says, you can even sleep in my bed. So I think, again, without it being stated, she's like, the dad does has no, has no use for me anymore because I'm paralyzed from the waist down. It's not that she objected to the relationship with the dad, but like she knows it's wrong enough where she's like, mm. not my sister. So suddenly, in the nicest way possible, like, you can even sleep in here. <laughs> Didn't even pick up on that the first couple of times I watched this movie, but I'm like, very clever the way that that stage. Um, and uh, we haven't gotten yet to Zoe's um, diagnosis, have we? The diagnosis, is this the bit where she's on the phone or like... A tested positive or whatever? Because there's a couple conversations. I don't think it's there Did yet. she test positive? I don't even know. I was paying attention well, to that point. So what did she test positive for? <laughs> okay, so before we get to that, the, the other funny thing in the scene here with the parents where they reveal the computer that Ian Holm bought is where um <laughs> the, the, the mom's like, uh, it's even got, what, are the, what uh, is that yeah. thing called? <laughs> Program a program. <laughs> well, the, the question I had though was again, obviously I was zoning out a little bit with the diagnosis. Didn't even realize there was one. But this whole deposition scene when Ian Holmes with Nicole around the table, like what is what is the conclusion there? Is she oh, like? Okay. No, I mean they're they're telling. She, this is basically the first time she's realizing that they're going to need a lawyer. She's saying she remembers nothing about right. it, which is going to be important oh, later okay, on. I remember that she's suddenly okay. rem- I was something, But the most important thing here, and this is something that we'll circle back to after the next deposition is the dad just out of nowhere says, when do they actually pay the damages? And Ian Holm gives him this look like a long look where he's like, well, these things take a long time. Like just bookmark that moment, because I think that that has more to do with what Nicole does later on to the dad than him fiddling around with her in the barn. Uh, sexist movie, by the way, I just want to point out when they're with our old monobrow one and monobrow two, when she's gone on her jail speech, I wrote this down. She's like, I want him to go to jail. I want him to die in prison to which then Ian Holmes like, we will get he and he, I'm like, well, women can kill kids in buses too. Um, they're called Dolores. <laughs> exactly. So sexist town implying that only a man can be a criminal in an equal opportunity world of 2023. Both genders are allowed to be criminals, all right? Women, if you're listening, go out we, there and break laws. You are allowed to. We women power. women's rights. Women, you have the right to go out and murder and there steal. There are too many men in prison. It's too it's sexist. We need more women in our prisons. I'm just saying. Yes, we want equal rights in prisons. If we're all for quotas and equality, then uh, more women in prison. More women should rape. That's a thing. Uh, <laughs> okay, is not something that just got out of this podcast. I regret saying that, but it should be more equal. All right? <laughs> Moving on. Um, Moving on. <laughs> there are things that I say that shouldn't be said, and I say them, and anyone else would edit it out. But probably, again, as always, make the best of. Um. So, all right. Old bad actress is on the phone here. Daddy, daddy, I need money. What's she diagnosed with? So they don't actually say, but she's basically saying, I went to give blood because that's how badly I needed money. And I tested positive. I'm assuming it's supposed to mean HIV. She has AIDS. Yeah. Um, She definitely has AIDS. She definitely has AIDS, which is... But does she? Because Ian Holm says, can I get another test done like I, I and we never actually find out like no daughter of mine has aids well no <laughs> I, th- I think this is somebody that like it, i'm sure everybody's kind of known a person like this like 
They've always AIDS. got a story for something <laughs> with AIDS, yes. But I mean, they've always got a story. Oh, I need help because of this, because of this, because of this. And at some point, you're just like, I'm not going to believe a word they say. Maybe this is a pitch of hers. We don't actually, I don't think it actually gets resolved in the movie. So we get a bit more with Dolores. And so her, her, what's, it's her, it's not implied that her husband was injured in the bus crash. Her husband's just in a wheelchair already. He had right? a stroke. He had yeah. a stroke. Okay, right. So, um, there's something important that he says here because she translated, but I can't remember what she he says, right? Which well, me out here. yeah, I mean, he says something like, rrr, rrr. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> not being sensitive. Hang <laughs> on. I'm not allowed to say women can rape, but Colin can't be here and disparage people with a stroke. That is literally what happens in the movie because it's funny. It's actually kind of a funny. Oh, it's hilarious. The guy's funny, had a stroke. He can't speak. At this point, Ian Holm is trying to get her on board to join this class action lawsuit. He's like, we're not going to go after her because she's only insured for so much. But if she joins the lawsuit and also is part of this, then we've got another person on board or whatever. So he's convincing her to do that. And the husband basically starts rambling and it's something you can't understand. And it's her response. She goes, I think you heard what my husband said. <laughs> But then she translates, basically saying, like, you're you're not uh, uh, the right person to judge you isn't going to be 12 random strangers. The only people who could judge you are your own friends and your own family. It's going to be a poor old guy. <laughs> well, I think he made himself perfectly clear, don't you? <laughs> so just to establish the last couple of minutes on the Oz Network, we have made a rape joke and a disabled man in a wheelchair joke. Um, <laughs> and we wonder why nobody listens to us. <laughs> Not all you need is G17 and you got bingo. <laughs> G17? What's that? Bing that's how bingo's played. You know that, right? Oh, I thought that was some taboo Under topic in B Canada. Like, don't, or, I don't know how bingo's I played. I'm not 87. <laughs> but I thought, like, we've covered off this, that, and everything well, else. The G17 is code for molestation or something like that in my household. I don't know. Oh, we got molestation. We got rape. We got anti Semitism. Anti-Semitism um, and the disabled. We just need one more. G17 and we're there. Racism. There's racism. Not, there's not a person ben, of say color. say something racist. There's not a person of color in this movie. Racist. Bear? Bear? Which one's bear? <laughs> <laughs> the son of the hippies? Is that a colored child? They, say, they even Well, they even say like, oh, he's native. Oh, aren't they native too? They're like, no, they adopt. I don't him. see color, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> but native's not color, right? Because that's they're the originals. Well, I mean, yeah, why are the color technically against a native? Yeah. I don't fucking know. Sure. Say something, Ray. Where's Noah? Where are doing? <laughs> and we have Taboo Bingo. <laughs> this was 100% the right movie for us to get as offensive as possible. Can we please do Schindler's List? Um, <laughs> oh, look at them all. They're getting gassed. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so Dolores is getting deposed here. We've got old Star Wars, a new hope person. She's all basically like, oh, this is what happened. I wasn't in control of the bus anymore. I crashed. Children died. Sad. Um, this is where we get Bruce Greenwood coming over to bash a child molester. You get rid of that damn lawsuit. Rabble, 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 rabble. Who's the, um, in, you know, in South Park, how you've got those two, like, real redneck, but isn't it like Kenny's dad? Like, this guy, he reminds me of Kenny's dad in South Park. <laughs> and he's all like, I got this ladder, I'm getting subpoenaed, and you fucking, you do this. I, like, why is he so anti lawsuit? Um, he doesn't think anybody's actually to blame for this. I, I think, again, it has a lot to do, so much of this movie is for interpretation, especially with the characters, but 
it, it has a lot to do with the fact that um, there's a scene right after he leaves here or part of the scene where he leaves here and Nicole's dad is basically saying, listen, we're all trying to move on with our lives. Why don't you? And you have to kind of stop and realize he lost his wife before he lost his kid. So mm-hmm. this is the only guy who has nothing left. So I think it's supposed to be like he's got nobody left. It's like, what else are you going to take from me? Like, I, I, you can't give me any of this back. This is a guy who's lost everything, you know? Yeah. So he doesn't feel the need to gain anything from this. There's a scene here with old pedo dad and Nicole saying something. I don't remember what said. He carries her into the room. She gives a deposition and he's basically all like, oh, yeah, Dolores was speeding. Yep, I could totally yeah. see the speedometer. Absolutely. She was definitely speeding. <laughs> and everyone's all like, oh, damn. Oh, well, there goes all that money. Um, and- this is the Simpsons episode where Bart got run over by Mr. Burns. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think that uh, we would have given him $3 for his allowance had he been <laughs> able to take out the garbage. <laughs> Uh, I'm surprised Colin isn't laughing at here at old pedo dad carrying a girl in a wheelchair into the building. <laughs> um, and then this sort of ends. This is where I legitimately thought like Ian Holmes about to make it out with this like childhood friend because they're in the airport. She's all like, oh, thanks, daddy. It's nice chat. And he's all like, oh. <laughs> a lot of daddies. Then he has a bit of a cry because he sees like a couple with a child. And then as we walk out of the building, he sees Dolores, who is now like the airport bus woman in Toronto or Vancouver um, and they kind of have a bit of an awkward stare and then this sort of ends with uh, I guess Nicole telling more Pied Piper stories, kissing the children and then she, does this movie turn into the whale? Like she walks up to the window and there's a bright light and like I'm just expecting <laughs> you to go like <gasps> and then like movie ends. <laughs> Written and directed by Darren and, you know like yeah. Um so, yeah, essentially she's lied to so this lawsuit doesn't happen. She's said that Dolores is it to blame. Automatically everyone believes her. Lawsuit goes away. She's now driving a bus in Toronto or wherever and then movie end. And it's the Pied Piper references at the end as well. So what is that light meant to be at the end? Jesus? I don't know. Um, headlights from a bus coming to crash. Another pedo? It's Thursday night. Pedo number seven from the town is coming to feel her up. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't even pick up on a light at the end of this movie. How could you uh, not? But, She's uh, standing in front of a dark window and a light just goes black screen. Well, I don't know. The sun just came out. Who knows? <laughs> Bloody Canada sun. You ever, get, you ever get it though, where like you get somebody driving past your window at yeah. night and the headlights just hit it? But like, but like in such a movie where there's like subtle themes and you got to like the you know yeah. size. Like to me, like a filmmaker is not going to do that without that meaning something. Yeah. And- I don't know. Let's ask Adam McGoyan. <laughs> and he's on the, the line now. <laughs> Up and Adam. Up and Adam McGoyan. Up and Adam. No, I, I love the scene where uh, Ian Holmes pitching Dolores to join this lawsuit, partly because I kind of know, and you know now, how this ends is that Dolores is going to be blamed for this, but she's blamed for it, and it's not really going to matter because now she's joined the suit. You can't do anything else. Uh, but the husband, I know, is kind of making the noises like him or whatever. But, I mean, it's actually really powerful. There is kind of that subtle laugh where he's rambling something and you can't understand what he's saying. And she's like, well, you heard what he had to say. But uh, it, it, the performance this guy gives is actually really powerful. And the way that she translates after that and like how much emotion there is, it's a great scene. Um I love the scene where Bruce Greenwood comes to the house here uh, again, just showing like the different uh, objectives these people have, because that scene earlier on where 
uh, Nicole's dad asked Ian Holmes, so when are we getting the money? You realize like, there is a little bit of money motivation with this guy. And again, are we supposed to judge him for it? Probably not. His job. Uh, I, he, it, well, I mean, we don't know. We don't know what the expenses are, you know, because obviously he says there's medical expenses. Now there is health care in Canada, but I can tell you I've got three kids that, uh, you know, they're not disabled as in they're in a wheelchair but you know they're they're on the autism spectrum and there's certain services that we get for free and there's other things where it's like well if you want this you got to actually apply for some type of funding so there's things that we apply for to try to get you know some organization to give us some funding for so i can imagine the amount of times he had to paint this ramp alone probably cost a few million dollars so <laughs> obviously there there are some expenses that go wrong with this quality of life and stuff like that uh, so I'm not going to judge him too much for, you know, him, his motivation maybe being the money here, because despite all the things that he did with her, he's still trying to be the good dad. You know, he's trying to make this the nicest place possible, the most comfortable place possible for her. He's still trying to help her. You know, um, that's what's interesting about his character is that, yes, he is technically a child molester, but he's also not a terrible father in other ways, you know, like <laughs> this is where you gotta be, you gotta be stop very calling defending here. child molesters. Everybody let's listen. Well, no, it's, it's funny. There's a, there's They're another podcast. Well, then there's another podcast um, that uh, I listened to that covered the suite here after this past week. And they said the same thing. Like it, it feels very icky trying to say this, but like, he's not a terrible character. You know, uh, he's, he's a decent guy who, what are his motivations? We don't know. It's wrong. It's 100% wrong, but it's like Hitler, right? Like, Hitler, I'm sure <laughs> no. it's... Here we go. There we go. Big G17. Bingo. <laughs> Sorry. Hang on. Just, I'm, just, I'm just bracing myself here. The cold is going, are okay. It's kind of like Hitler. He's a decent dude. <laughs> no, you you got to imagine at some point, Hitler helped an old lady cross the street, you know? <laughs> and this is sort of like, yeah, we're seeing like, this isn't some evil guy who's like, Oh, I had my way with her and now out to the curb, you know, and, and part of it is probably guilt on his part. <laughs> Fucking hell. Kind of like Hitler, you know, he helps an old lady across the street. Mussolini, Colin, how good was that guy deep down? Stalin, he was pretty good. I'm sh- Saddam Hussein. I'm sure he would, I'm sure they would paint their daughter's rooms if they didn't like the color. Sure, why not? Bill Cosby. He entertained America for a decade, but he may have done things illegally. Oh, God, like, Harvey Weinstein God, produced man, some great right? films. Uh, he absolutely did. He's don't take back that man's Oscars. He did good, solid work. Uh, wow. You get what I'm saying, though, right? Like this isn't a clear cut. This isn't a cut and dry. <laughs> this isn't cut and dry. Literally, this my favorite saying in life is, "You get what I'm saying, right?" Like, <laughs> no, I, I, I I, I'm, I'm happy to it. sit here for once and not be digging myself a hole. I'm looking at somebody else. You know, molestation not not too bad. He donated to charity. He can touch whatever kids he likes. Good for him. But my point, my long about point of this being, we see good things about his character. We see bad things about his character, but technically the only thing that points towards him being a terrible person is that he's in it for the money, which that's the one thing where I'm like, well, this I kind of agree with him with, right? You know, <laughs> if, if Casper got run over by a bus or drowned in a bus or something like that, you know, of course I'm going to be thinking, listen, if not for me, you could put this money away for her future, right? Like, I'm not saying Casper's a her, but this is what the dad is thinking, right? Some of this money, I, I doubt all of his motives are, I want money, I want to be rich. It, it has a lot to do with the fact that, like, she's going to need things later in life. Will she be able to get I, a job? 
I, I just can't wait until you find out your neighbor's been sneaking over and kitty fiddling Casper. <laughs> you're just like, well, he goes for the Leafs and he goes to church. He's all right. Yeah, there, was, there was that one time where, you know, the kids threw their ball in his yard and he threw it back at them and he said, there you go, sugar. sports. <laughs> I'm not condoning anything this guy did. I'm saying you could have painted him as this evil, evil guy, but instead you mess with the audience <laughs> so, a little bit. You, you make them almost feel bad for him at times. Firm Oz Network statement right now. We do not condone child molestation. <laughs> yes. But what Colin says <laughs> might be reasonable. Well, and, and it's, it's because this scene's really important when he is on her bed and you're like, oh, what's he going to do now? This is that explanation you're looking for as to what her motive was, where he basically says, or she basically says to him, it's like, like, what good am I anymore to you as your daughter? And he's like, well, what do you mean? In his mind, he's probably already blocked this out. He's like, listen, I did that stuff before. I want to pretend it never happened because she's basically bringing up the topic. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. She doesn't even come right out and say it. She basically says, well, hey, I'm not, you know, the the girl you could pretend is like the beautiful rock star anymore. Right. So that kind of explains what their relationship was originally. You know, he was like, oh, this is this. I know it's my daughter, but hey, she's a good singer. She's almost like a rock star. I'll kind of pretend like she's like the the hot rock star and I'm like her male groupie or whatever. This is Your like mom. their little gameplay. <laughs> kind of. Yes. Uh, <laughs> not that my mom did this with people, but I'm just saying, um, listen, don't roll those eyes. <laughs> is, there, is there anything you want to admit today? <laughs> my mom was a great person, man. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, like she's basically, and this kind of explains her side of it too. She's like, well, he basically made me feel like this beautiful girl who was like successful and like a rock star and like famous and everybody would want me. And that right alone explains everything. And it, he and she kind of knows, and that kind of is why from the second they brought her home, she's given the cold shoulder because she realizes he's got no need for me anymore, which is why I love that scene with the sister so much earlier too. Um yeah, so moving on from child molestation here, let's hopefully be done with that. Uh, this is a sentence oh, we I, say I, I, too often on this show. I think we need to have a meeting but, after this episode, Colin. <laughs> moving on from child molestation just doesn't feel but, right. Uh, when Bruce Greenwood's at the house, though, he offers to pay their bills for them, which is interesting, too. It's like mm. He doesn't just say, well, you got bills, I'll pay them. He even says, I'll give you my payout, because you realize they've already gotten a payout from the insurance of the bus crash, the school bus insurance or whatever. This is sort of on top of everything else, and he's offering to give that up to them. I even love the line he has where he's like, you know, this is what we used to do. If somebody was in trouble, we would help each other. And like, what are we now? Um, this movie doesn't go the direction of being like, oh, this is a town divided over or anything. This is the only division you see between any people. It's really the only interaction you see from any of these different groups of people too. Uh, when they're on the way here. So earlier on, and it wasn't the scene she was singing at the fair. I did note it was a different point where Sarah Pauly actually does like an acoustic cover of the tragically up song courage, the, which is, Weird because I typically hate things like this. Like I, I know it was a big fad not around this time when the movie came out, but a little bit after that, that you'd have like what was it, Disturbed that did a cover of like Simon and Garfunkel's The Sound. Oh, of that's Silence, a great right? version though. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, no, I'm saying not like that or like Alien Ant Farm did Michael Jackson. Johnny Cash did Hurt. That was uh... Johnny Cash Hurt. Yeah. But like the opposite of that when you take like a really fast, you know, uh, oh, like you saw a song, song. Yeah. Yeah, like, I hate that. But, like, this cover of Courage she does is amazing. Uh, but you do hear the Tragic Leap's version when they're driving to her deposition in the car. And I think they're still playing it when he's carrying her into the building. And it's, like, a, a massive, like, stadium rock song. And to hear, like, what she did with the cover, like, again, 17... I don't mind that she sometimes. Obviously it can work. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's so overdone. And, again, that's just kind of the genre of music nowadays is so... 
acoustic driven and you know coffee house uh i i hate that indie rock is now a genre like it is a proper genre where you, you go into a music store and they've got the indie rock sections like these artists aren't even independent why is it called indie rock it's it's just it's it, i'm over it but anyways <laughs> i like her cover of it but you do hear the real version <laughs> that's of a it column fact too. i'm over that's it that's a call in fact where's my sound effect i need yeah, a sound yeah, effect. it's a fart sound but i'm not playing that out. this show's oh, okay. above brow <laughs> we talk about child molestation um, <laughs> But yeah, like the song playing right before they go into the deposition here, like it's a big, like you know, heroic song. And the song is actually called Courage too. And she's about to go in there and basically play everybody. But the way it plays out is great because she starts by saying, I really don't remember anything about the crash, which is what she said earlier. And then she's like, now it's coming back to me. I was scared. Why were you scared? And it's like, because I could see this pedometer. And what was it? 72 miles an hour. Like you specifically saw like, it is the most far-fetched thing ever, but like she knows She's actually the smartest character in this movie. She knows nobody has to believe that I actually saw this. It just means I'm not on their side. They have no case. Even earlier on when Ian Holm was basically saying, we're going to do Dolores, then we're going to do the the other families, and then we're going to do you last. He's basically saying, because we want you to get better, but it's because I want to parade the girl in the wheelchair out there. Without her, there is no case. Um, and then that that conversation that they have, or the, the brief exchange they have, right after she says it was 72 miles per hour or whatever, uh, it's like he's. I have no further questions. She's walking away and goes, you make a great poker player, kid. And she's just like, thanks. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a nice little way to kind of end like the, the whole movie, even though there's a couple more scenes to go. Um, but uh, this is definitely a small town thing because like kilometers is what we have. We have the metric system in Canada, like everywhere else in the world but small America. People. But uh, if you go outside of a big city, they're probably still talking about miles, even in 2023. Uh, my brother-in-law's from a uh, town smaller than even LaSalle or Vita that I was in. Well, not smaller than Vita, but a uh, very small town. And he still to this day will be like, oh, I don't know. You go about you know 10 miles that way. And I'm like, what's a mile? I'm Canadian. Stop talking <laughs> to me like I'm American. But it's completely believable that in a small town here, they would be going 72 miles an hour, even though this is like well after the metric system was introduced. Um yeah, I, I, and I love too, like Ian Holm even says to the the dad here, uh, you know, it doesn't matter that she's lying. Well, I know she's lying. Everybody there could tell she's lying, but we have no case without her. But this is how you get Ian Holmes' character because you do kind of, at least I question at times watching this and even on multiple viewings, I'm like, we don't know. Is Ian Holm partly to blame for his daughter's problems? Like, mm. we don't get any of that. But it's what he says to the dad here. He says, you need to go home and think about a girl who would lie like this just to hurt her father, it's like she's got to be severely messed up. We know Nicole's not messed up. We know what the deal is. So the fact that Ian Holm believes that basically tells us also Ian Holm's the good dad. <laughs> He's not, he he knows, oh, if a kid's doing this, it's only because they're bad, right? When it's actually kind of the opposite here. Um, and then, uh, yeah, obviously with Dolores being the only thing left they could, you know, pin a lo lawsuit on, she's joined this lawsuit. So she's out of it now, which is another reason why the lawsuit's kind of dead. Uh, and I love her saying to the dad in the car, do you think we get to keep the computer? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, Which do uh, they? Yeah, so Is I, that the sequel? The Sweet Hereafter 2, Computer <laughs> Returns. The program. <laughs> the program, in quotes. Uh, the, the end scene that we get where you think that he's going to be making out with the, the girl on the plane too. I actually wonder whether Zoe's dead here. Because uh, again, we don't get closure. We don't know whether True. she actually ever had HIV or whatever. But she, again, he's not really giving answers. Like, well, and I hope that uh, when you get to see Zoe, it all goes okay. And he's like, doesn't say anything. This could just be the dad who's about to go in because he knows his daughter's going to be dying or she could already be dead. Uh, and seeing Dolores with the 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 bus, driving the bus at the end of this, 
this is interesting because I think the first couple times I watched this movie, I interpreted it as like, it's kind of sad that she's the one who kind of loses what she had originally, right? Like she's not able to move on with life. She doesn't get to drive the bus anymore. But I think I completely misinterpreted that scene because I, I was looking at it from the point of view of, oh, well, Nicole basically threw Dolores under the under the bus. Oh. <laughs> that was the words. Threw her under the bus uh, to say, well, she was speeding. So now the blame is on her. But I'm like, but there's nothing else they could do to her. So it's no, she, Nicole was smart enough to know Dolores isn't going to lose anything by me saying this was her because there's no chance to, to pin anything on her anymore. But it's the way she's interacting with her passengers, the same way that she interacted with the kids where I'm like, Dolores driving this airport shuttle, that's her choice. Mm. Like this is her moving on with her life, which again, I three times seen this movie prior, I never picked up on, but it's kind of a nice ending. Like you actually get at least one happy ending. Whereas even though I interpreted this as like an unhappy ending originally, it's like, it's a happy ending because Dolores is kind of happy and she gives like this little smile to Ian Holmes. So he's going to be happy too. I mean, this is every movie that just brings joy to everybody, I guess. Really does. It's the heartfelt kid of the summer. Um, it's called the bus that wouldn't slow down. Um, this is speed two cruise control, but much better movie. Um, I, well, it is set in BC, by the way, because if you actually look at the license plates of all the cars and the buses and everything, it does have beautiful British Columbia on it, which good to see the license plates haven't changed in that uh, province in like 20 years because they look exactly the same as when I lived there. Um, but laugh a minute, this film really is. Um, <laughs> so it was nominated for two Oscars, lost both of them. Uh, so best director, as you said, for Atom, Up and Atom Egoyan. Uh, which obviously lost to James Cameron uh, for Titanic, and <laughs> rightfully so. And it wasn't called Best Adapted Screenplay. It used to be called Best Screenplay Based on Material Previously Produced oh, or Published. <laughs> Jesus. Um, which uh, lost to LA Confidential. Uh, so, as you said, a very packed... Yeah, I'd like to go back and do that year of the Oscars. Well, uh, yeah, LA Confidential, as good as it gets. Goodwill Hunting. Oh, Monty. Uh, Full Monty, yeah. I think Phil Monty was the movie that Adam McGoyan took the director's spot of. Um, I, I just, oh, no. The, the, the Full Monty there. guy got nominated. Peter Catiano. For Best Director? Yeah, he didn't. Oh, uh, so it was James L. Brooks didn't for as good as it gets then, I'm guessing? So that, that year nominated was James Cameron for Titanic, Peter Catiano for Full Monty, Gus Van Sant for Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, um, uh, as good as it gets. Did not get nominated. Um, yeah, the Canadian Screen Awards. I mean, this was nominated for pretty much everything. It won for original score, sound editing, sound, uh, cinematography, picture director, and actor for Ian Holm. Sarah Pauly nominated for actress. The Gabrielle Rose, the bus driver, good, got nominated for best uh, actress. Best supporting actor, actually not even Bruce Greenwood. It was Tom McCamus, the 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 dad, uh, hmm. Nicole's dad. So uh, it also got nominated Cannes, like uh, three films yeah. there. Grand Prize like of the Jury, the first Canadian movie to ever win that. Um, the I love how Atom Egoyan wins the prize of the Ecumenical Jury at the Cannes Film Festival. Okay. Uh, the Genie Awards won a lot. That's what I just wonder, yeah. Yep. Um, Toronto International Film Festival, Best Canadian Feature Film, New York Film Critics Circle. Uh, it got the runner-up in the Best Film Director and Actor. So good for them. And you know what? Um, I, I actually had to go back to confirm this because I forgot, but I remember I used to, the way I kind of got into movies was watching late at night on like Saturday nights or whatever. Yeah, me too. Siskel and, Siskel and Ebert's SBS. review show. <clears throat> but like Siskel and Ebert would have like a show half an hour every single week where they'd review every new movie. 
So I'd watch that and I'd be like, oh, I've never heard of this movie. Oh, that sounds interesting. And then when it came out on video or whatever, when I got a chance, I'd watch some of these. Um, their year-end lists, uh, I think Siskel ranked it. It was Siskel ranked it at number seven and Ebert ranked it at number two. Um, Titanic did not beat it. So Siskel, in Siskel and Ebert's minds, The Sweet Hereafter, better film than Titanic, which is all that matters. Won an Oscar. That's all that matters. Uh, and also... There's a top 10 Canadian films of all time list compiled by the oh, yeah. Toronto International Film Festival. Started in 1984 and they've done it in 84, 93, 2004, 2015. So in the two subsequent lists that this has been released, that this movie has been out, it has appeared on both at number, tied for number three um, with in 2004 with Going Down the Road. And then in 2015, it, went straight to number three and going down the road dropped three places, but okay. I'm seeing here that there's one film that he's like, so it was number one in 84, 93, 2004, and the number two in 2015, Mon Oncle Antoine from 1971. Yeah. Have you ever seen that? Never. Uh, the only uh, knowledge I even have that movie exists is from this list. Uh, by the way, the, the movie that's number one on there, that would be a fun one to cover other than the fact there's some subtitles in it. Arduit, The Fast Runner. Kind of like a epic film. Yeah, it's 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 you know I guess a bit of action like uh, Inuit tribe in the north um, running for his life, killing people. I mean, it's a good movie. I am intrigued how they changed the so like that movie was released in two thousand and one. It only finished fifth in two thousand four, but then they make it number one in two thousand and fifteen. Yeah. So like how that changes. Well, um, also, my Winnipeg. Like, we've talked about that a few times. When are yeah. we doing my Winnipeg? That's a really interesting. Do- it's a documentary, but it's like it's it's one of the most entertaining documentaries you'd see. Um, but no, that, that list is kind of like how the AFI puts out like their mm. you know, hundred greatest films of all time. And like the list will have shuffles here and there, you know, different people. And some movies just, you know, uh, grow more with time, I guess. And people appreciate them a little bit more. Jesus um, of Montreal. I've heard about that one. Never seen it. Um, th- this movie, I don't know if you were going to get the, the reviews as well. I was Colin. Would you like to uh, say something about it, or would you like me to say something about it? Well, I mean, it's it's ninety eight percent of Rotten Tomatoes. Yes, you want to say something the, about it, okay? <laughs> this was a, this was one of a, only a handful of movies that maintained a one hundred percent rating for like almost twenty years. I, I think there was a point where there were only a, like a handful of movies that had a hundred percent of Rotten Tomatoes, and this was Sweet Hereafter was one of them. And I mean, now it's only dropped to ninety eight percent, and it's taken almost. 25 years for it to do that. Well, Roger Ebert said four stars, calling it one of the best films of the year. Janet Maslin of the New York Times said this fusion of Mr. Banks and Mr. Agoyan sensibility stands as a particular, that's such a wanky, just say it's a good film, Janet. Jesus, I know you work for the New York Times, but fucking hell. Um, Entertainment Weekly gave it an A, saying it puts you in a rapturous emotional days. Like again, film critics, stop being wanky. Just say this film was good. It made me feel things. Um, uh, 2001, an industry poll conducted by Playbook named it the best Canadian film of the preceding 15 years. Um, and 2004, Slovenian critic Slavoj Zizek called The Sweet Hereafter arguably the film about the impact of trauma on a community. Yeah, when are we doing Impact of Trauma on Community Month? Um, I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm an advocate for more Slovenian film critics having their voices heard. That's uh, very inclusive. Uh, and the New York Times also included this film on its list of one the best 1,000 movies ever made. Which, uh, is there a list that we can see what, where that... that... I, I just know that Brain Candy in Australia did not make that list. <laughs> uh, did Tomorrow When the War Began, <laughs> 10 years prior to its release? Uh, I always love these, like, you know, there, there is that book, the 1,001 movies. I've got to... one over here. Then they always 501, 501 must-see movies. I know... 
uh, Noah's doing that 1,000 albums listened to before you die, which I looked that up, by the way. The same list he's doing, and I think he's got three Madonna albums to get through on that. So good luck, uh, Noah. I haven't told him that. Uh, just seeing here that Jurassic Park did not make the 1,000 movies to see before you die list from New York Times. Go and get fucked. Um, Jaws did. Jerry Maguire did. Jailhouse Rock did. Um, yeah. Come on. Did Titanic? Did Titanic? Hang on. Let's see here. Did it? It. It didn't. Well, there you go. Uh, there we go. Three <laughs> sources that say Sweet Here After better movie than Titanic. But Tootsie did. Uh, <laughs> fuck off. Um, two women from 1961 did. Good on it. Um, I guess user reviews would go for one star. Um, I like here uh, user Urgru. Is that the? Isn't that Baby Yoda? Uh, said. See Exotica instead. Yes, I agree. Ever since the truly excellent Exotica, I've kept an eye on Atom Agoyan. But unfortunately, Agoyan so far has proven to be one of those directors for whom everything clicks once and everything other film tries to replicate the beauty of that one film. That's a long review. Uh, Veneer of depth, hyperdrama, a depressing tale of death and corruption. Is there corruption in this movie? Uh, Way too convoluted with no real meaning. Don't waste a penny of this. This is a short one. What a waste of two hours. This was one of the most disappointing movies I've ever rented. The picture you see on the cover, the man, woman, and the baby has nothing to do with the movie. Uh, it kind of does. Uh, and the title, <laughs> a lot. Sweet Hereafter, has nothing to do with the movie. Well, you get that line at the end. It's which kind the of, closing line. Yeah. Don't let any of these artsy types fool you. The whole Pied Piper thing has got to be the stupidest metaphor I've ever heard of. Yeah, it's a bit in your face. I, I will agree with that. Adam McGoin is artsy and it thinks and it thinks he is the man. Well, Adam, you're not. And this movie proves it. Don't waste your money from Supercritic. That's their name. The yes. End. Do you have yeah. any? Um, horror, no. I will horrid here from Rory Hare. A horrid, pointless story with lurid detail to appear cool. Okay. Um, plot keywords. I'm on board with full are, female. Full. Are we going to do box? Just want to say we want to do box office. I'll do that after this one because this one's more fun. Okay. Um, full female, full female, full frontal nudity month. Uh, featuring all oh, the oh, Last of Us. I haven't watched that yet, so I'm looking forward to watching that even more now. Uh, Obsession, Game of Thrones, and True Detective. Didn't realize there was boobs in True Detective. Better watch there, it. Father daughter incest month. Oh, um, where are we? Law and, oh, Law and Order special victims unit. What? Uh, Barbarian. That's that new movie that just came out. It's a horror movie. I don't remember any incest. A woman in staying in an Airbnb discovers that the house she has rented is not what it seems. Oh, I, I want to go stay there. Uh, girl in the basement and Twin Peaks. Okay. Nipples uh, month. Oh, we've definitely covered most of those. Featuring <laughs> Narcos, American Psycho, Eyes Wide Shut, and Bram Stoker's Dracula. Not Batman and Robin. Be- Female pubic hair month, Game Ooh. of Thrones. Man South removes Park. a woman's panties month. <laughs> I like this. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, this is the one non-sexual movie Adam McGoyan made in his career. Look at all the keywords. Promising young woman, Under the Skin, Unleashed, and Zola. They all look like good movies that I'm going to watch tonight. Uh, bus wreck month, HIV positive month, television, <laughs> telephone call from a phone booth month. Um, Ham radio month. <laughs> oh, do it. What do we got? Narcos again, Super 8, Logan, and A Quiet Place. Child Molestation Month. Uh, <laughs> this is for Colin. 13. Is that Molestation in 13? Uh, the Green Mile, Veronica Mars, and The Devil's Advocate. Okay. 
Um, <laughs> there's so many in this film. Like, you know, some black. I'm only now with the bees. I mean, <laughs> there's so many female nudity things. Incest. Okay, incest month. What is it called? Tasmania. Uh, we have Game of Thrones, South Park, Law and Order, SVU. Where's the sound effect? Doom doom. And the Blue Lagoon. I was gonna say this one is way too hyper specific to have a list on. Bus sinking into Lake Month. The list <laughs> consists of the sweet hereafter, and that's it. I, I just like the fact that we've just got sex month. Um, may as well have a look. Pretty baby from 1978. A preteen. We've talked about that one before, haven't we? A preteen girl lives as a prostitute in New Orleans in 1917. Narcos, Narcos again. Uh, Mad Men and Don't Worry, Darling. So, and the Mentalist is number six on Simon sex Baker. list. That man's just sex. <laughs> um, so this made $3.2 million domestically and worldwide because it wasn't released internationally, apparently. Uh, so do you have more to add on this? Like You said this yeah, was considered a bad, like a bomb? Well, I mean, the Exotica had made a lot more than this on a much smaller budget. Um, but uh, the, the, the biggest blunder of this, it, it's not necessarily a blunder, more just a problem with the Canadian film industry, is that this movie came out in Canada a few weeks beforehand and it did so little business that they actually pulled it from theaters. And it was only a couple months later when it started picking up all these awards and everything, they re-released it. It eventually went on to make a million dollars, just the Canadian side of the box office, uh, which putting that in perspective, I mean, one-tenth the amount of people seeing movies, a million dollars Canadian is like 10 million. I mean, there's a lot of Oscar-nominated films that would love to make $10 million now, uh, but it took a while to catch on. And uh, apparently the studio behind this, the studio head basically said, we had no money for marketing, which is true. There's not really just this movie. I mean, even a major Hollywood movie is probably going to spend at least the same amount that you spent on the movie itself to market it. And the problem with Canadian films is that how do you market it when you're competing against the American movies where you're, you've got marketing everywhere, you know? So it took until men with brooms, which we covered in our first year, we did this for any Canadian movie actually had a budget set aside where we're really going to promote this thing. Uh, and if you look at all of Adam McGowan's future movies after this, he would be given astronomical budgets by Canadian standards. And they do about the same amount of box office. Cause it's just, there's no way to promote things in Canada. Yeah, bloody Canadian. I, I think it's read ads. I think it's actually, and this isn't. This is, I think, pretty fair too. I think it's probably even slightly easier in Australia for Australian films to gain some traction because if you're competing with American movies, you're competing with American movies maybe a couple weeks later, or even in some cases a few months later. Every American film that gets released gets released in Canada at the same time. So to put a Canadian movie out there, you're just flooding the marketplace even more in Canada than you are in the states. And when it's a small budget movie. There's almost no chance anybody's going to see it because we're getting it like the same day. I mean, yes, and no, nowadays we get them at the same time. It's very rare, I think, for any for the know, major ones, yeah, yeah, particularly the major ones. Maybe Except no, no time to die. <laughs> yeah, well, you know that's whatever. But um, yeah, I think kind of just again, as I've said so many times, like I just don't think people in Australia give a shit about Australian movies. It's just like, oh yeah, yeah, about a dog, cool. Um, I mean, the weekend it was released October 10. Oh, my month's birthday, uh, October 10 to 12, 1997. So this was came in at 21st out of the 23 movies. Con Air was last that weekend, by the way, and it's 19th week of release. It made $512. Um, so you're not a whole lot. But um, this only beat a film called Lilies. But having said that, Boogie Nights was only two spots ahead of this. They were only released in one cinema. I uh, oh, sorry, no, one week. I'm looking at the wrong column. There you go. Uh, this Well, having said that, this was released in two cinemas. 
So, I mean, it made $31,000 in two cinemas. That's not too bad if you look about yeah, it. Average, it's an average. average of 15000 which that week, uh, if you sort it by averages, it was the second highest grossing film, third highest grossing film that week based on averages alone. So that's not too bad. Um, but I mean, outside of that, other movies that were in very long, like Lost World, this lost out to the Lost World Jurassic Park um, by uh, $9,000 because basically the Lost World was in week 21 of release at that point. Liar Liar was in week 30 of release that week. Still made $55,000. But that week we could have gone to the cinemas, Colin. We could have seen uh, Kiss the Girls was number one. My favourite thing to do, your least favourite thing to do. Uh, Seven Years in Tibet was the highest grossing film that week of being opened. That came at number two. We had Soul Food, In and Out, The Peacemaker, Rocket Man came in at number six. Uh, LA Confidential at seven, The Edge. That's that uh, movie with Alec Baldwin. Yeah. <laughs> kept trying to work out what it was called. Uh, not Timothy Dalton. Uh, most Wanted and Gang Related. Also out that week, you had Full Monty was still in cinemas, Men in Black, Air Force One. So, yeah, decent time to go to the movies that weekend. So, I'd be on board. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I know what you're going to do with this movie. Are you going to have this at your number one for the month? Yeah, like it's not even close. And if I had seen this movie one time, I don't think I would say that. Um, I, I'm sure you're going to rush out to see this one in another 10 years. But uh, I think this is a movie that just improves each time you watch it. Uh, I originally I, I thought this was a really good movie and now when i kind of look at like 1997 i mean this this isn't me just saying it versus titanic like i might even say this is a better film than la confidential and i've always loved la confidential uh this is easily my number one for the month and easily a buy so what's your we'll go over our four in a second um look so I, I i never decided on my other so yeah this will be kind of a surprise i'll go it's a rent for me probably like a low rent like it's just i just base that on like this isn't a bad movie i didn't hate it but like, I'm never gonna watch this movie again. I'm sorry. Like, I mean, it's 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 fine. It's you know whatever. But like, I like I maybe it does warrant another rewatch for me. So a like, low get it rent like, basically says this is a step above a bin. Are you serious? But like, it's just it's a style of movie that I like enjoy and like a type of if I like a serious like type of movie that like this isn't one that I kind of walk away going like oh like I you know like don't. Look, scoff at me, Mister. Oh, I put episode one of season five of twenty four at like I've, thirty on the list. Like it was number nine, but but it's just uh, and again, I'm I'm glad that you enjoy brain candy, but you're gonna rank brain candy higher than the sweet here afterwards. Yeah, this is my lowest. <laughs> the for most the month. Ben Waterworth thing ever. <laughs> I'm sorry, but this is my lowest for the month. My ranking's pretty easy. It's Australia tomorrow when the war began. Brain candy and then this. Um. Yeah, I, I'm actually I'm still very torn between brain candy and tomorrow when the war began. Uh. If I was not such a big Kids in the Hall TV fan, I would probably rank Brain Candy higher, but just knowing that that is still probably the weakest thing they ever did, uh, I would probably do Tomorrow When the War Began as my number two, and then Brain Candy is number three, and then Australia dead last. Uh, I'm curious how much mix-up we've had with our rankings over the years, or if it does kind of usually lean towards, you know, you with the Australians and me with the Canadians. Because obviously we're, we're, we're not really familiar with a lot of the movies the other person's picking, whereas yeah. we're picking the movies that we did for with good reason. Well, this would be the third time we've done this, right? Fourth and third time. I'm pretty sure I ranked Treed Murray at number one when we did that because I loved that film. Um, and what did we do that year? We did Crocodile Dundee and uh, Boytown, I think. Do we do No, do we yeah, do Boytown, Boytown the Boytown. first year? Oh, the second year. Uh, so Swinging Safari. Oh, Swinging Safari, yeah, yeah. Oh, did yeah. I rank that number? Yeah, so and then the first year, Castle probably would have been number one and Boytown probably would have been number two. Mm -hmm. um, and then what did we do that year? We did uh, Good Bog Gone Pomp 
pop, bad pop, bon, and bon pop, um, bad men pop, with brooms, and right? Brooms, yeah. And then the second year we did um, Treed Murray and uh, the the vagina movie, um, yeah. <laughs> which in hindsight, off the top of my head, I enjoyed Good Cop, Bond Cop, Bad Cop, and I enjoyed uh, Men with Brooms, and I definitely enjoyed Treed Murray. So if I had to rank the Canadian films, the six that we've done. Off the top of my head and a few years removed for some of them, I would probably say it would be Treed Murray, easily number one. Uh, probably Good Cop, Bond Cop, Bad Cop, number two. Uh, then Brain Candy and Men With Brooms would be probably three, four. I don't know what order. And then uh, this and then Dead Ringers would be last. <laughs> See, I, for the Australian ones, I, uh, I I think The Castle was something where it. I, I thought it was a great movie, but having never seen Australian film before... It was like this is just so different that I probably didn't. I probably would appreciate it even more now. So I might say that would actually be my number one ahead of Crocodile Dundee, uh, and then Boytown was pretty solid. <laughs> I think Yay! I still, I, every, every every once in a while, I still will will to Jamie quote special time of the month or cellulite lady. I haven't watched that. No, I need to rewatch. I fucking love that movie. Yeah, and then we um, Australia would be my last. That's all. <laughs> Australia is dead last. Yeah, I, and this is where I think, like right now, we'll kind of put a few films out there. And this is this is how I remembered what we were doing this year because it's been obviously two years since we did this. But I mean, obviously, we'll talk about what we're doing next month. But I think, like off the top of my head, for Australian films, like I'm just going judging on the top 100 Australian films of all time according to Screen Australia again. Uh, Babe is an obvious one. I feel like we need to do Babe because it has honestly been a long time since I have seen Babe, and I. Everyone loves Babe. Great movie. Um, and then there you've kind of got these middle ground ones, which I don't consider Australian films. I mean, like Mad Max is an obvious one, which I've actually never seen Mad Max. And I feel like Mad Max. The Gall- first one. Mad Max and Gallipoli in terms of just iconic Australian cinema. Or you've got like Picnic at Hanging Rock, like these sort of ones that are very iconically Australian that I feel that even I haven't seen, which I feel like maybe we need to do. But I mean, having said that, I look at this list like Lion. I've never seen Lion, but that like that's a movie which I have a personal connection to that movie. I can tell a story about the main guy in that film, and that was filmed in Tasmania. So that's like a connection to like exactly where I'm from. I mean, again, you would argue Moulin Rouge is up there with an Australia, but even less so of an Australian film because it's you know that. Um, and then you kind of go down to maybe a strictly ballroom. Do another Baz, do do Baz Luhrmann's first movie. You know, Man from Snowy River. These types of iconic ones. Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, Muriel's Wedding, iconic movies that really put Australian cinema on the screen in the 90s. So I think right now I'm going to put out there just as a babe, I think we put in as a lock. And to me, that second slot will, if I can be bothered sitting through Gallipoli, which I'm not a fan of, or like a Mad Max or one of these iconic ones, or maybe I just go Lion because I want the Tasmanian connection and I kind of want to see it. So um, yeah, uh, babe is 100%. I'm going to try and remember that for next year. But other than that, uh, we'll decide on that other one. Maybe there'll be another Australian movie that comes out this year that blows people away. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I mean, there's there's a Canadian movie coming out next month that if it turns out to be really good, I'd love to next year, which is the BlackBerry movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, on the BlackBerry phone, which I saw the trailer for and it looks fantastic. Um, th- there's ones that I kind of mention every year I'd like to do. Actually, originally, I wanted to do Adam McGoyan's follow-up to this. It wasn't his direct follow-up, but a couple of years after this, a movie called Ararat, which was the most unusual way ever that he made a movie about the Armenian genocide by making a movie about the making of a movie about the mm. Armenian genocide um, and, and then showing flashbacks to it at the same time. And that that's, that's like a huge movie you know, as far as epic and scale goes, not as well received as sweet hereafter. Uh, the most odd choice I've always wanted to go with is um, the tragically Eclipse long time running, 
which is part just music documentary, which would be why I'd be hesitant to pick it because it's just concert films. But the movie, it has a story. I mean, it is a documentary about their final tour that they decided to do only because they found out the singer was dying within six months to a year. And so everybody going to these concerts and the entire band going on stage is like, hey, he'll be dead in a year. Let's get this tour done. And it was brain cancer. So he couldn't even remember the lyrics half the time and somehow made it through the tour. I mean, very interesting documentary, but uh, you got a lot of concert footage too. So not much story. Uh, there's um, the two that I really want to do this year that is just finding a decent copy of because they're kind of a combination of French and English language. There's one shake hands with the devil, which is um, based on a documentary and a book about the Rwandan genocide, or the Canadian general who was like leader of the peacekeepers or Rwandan genocide. And then the rocket about rocket Richard, the hockey player, both great, I guess, mainstream movies from the mid 2000s, but harder to find one with proper subtitles. Um, the, the one that uh, I think I, I really want to do is Eastern Promises, even though it does not scream Canadian in a lot of ways, because I've mentioned, it, I think almost every single week we've done this month here, uh, it takes place in London, stars Viggo Mortensen and Naomi Watts, uh, but it's directed by and produced by and made by Canadians. And one of the best movies that uh, I think I've seen in like the last 20 years. So Eastern Promises is the one I'm really leaning towards. But it, I think a lot of that does have to do with what other movies are we picking? You know, find something that kind of goes along with it. If you're going to pick Babe, do I do Air Bud? You know? Oh, <laughs> um, yes. If if you're going to pick Gallipoli, do I do something like Passchendaele? You know? That's a, a good movie. idea, though. Like, I'd fucking do Air Bud. Yeah, so maybe we do Babe and Air Bud and we do Gallipoli and Passchendaele or well, Hyena Road. There's a, there's a couple other ones that I forgot too, just And like, I'm sad that you're never doing better than chocolate, right? Like, come on. Um, But <laughs> I like The Dish. It's got Sam Neill in it. I think oh, you've seen The Dish, movie. haven't you? I've actually never seen it. Mm -hmm. But then you've also got um, like the real, like I remember that period in the early 90s when Yahoo Serious became a thing. So yeah. we could do like Reckless Kelly or, you know, Young Einstein or something like that, you know, or I could go for real arty fucking like a sweet thereafter, hereafter type movie, Lantana with Anthony LaPaglia in it, which was a massive deal in the early 2000s. So, yeah, but I like that idea of Babe and Airbud. Yeah. <laughs> Let's pair our movies. <laughs> yeah. As far as you still never done Porky's, Colin, because you don't want to watch sex. Oh, uh, and you know what? I, I tried to watch that like a year ago because I'm like, oh, one of these days we got to cover it. It again has a similar issue though with something like Eastern Promises and that it's a Canadian movie. It's like the highest grossing Canadian movie of all time, but it doesn't even take place in Canada. So it's like, does it feel very Canadian when it takes place in Florida? There's, there's other one like, like I didn't realize that Meatballs freaking, is uh, maybe more likely. I didn't realize the new version of Mortal Kombat is considered an Australian movie I'm seeing here on this list. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's others too that like legitimately could get people on the show. So looking for Alabrandi. It was a very big film here in like 2000s, kind of like a coming of age teenage girl in school movie. But the main actress in that, Pia Miranda, went on to play Australian Survivor and win Australian Survivor. She's like a mad, mad Survivor fan. And I've interviewed her and like could get her on the show to talk about looking for Ella Brandy, you know, because oh. that's what she was known as. Oh, Colin, she's, he's, he's found Ella Brandy. I just, I just Brandy. thought of something. If we're, we're going to pair movies here, I just thought of something, okay? So if, if you're putting up Mad Max, there's a Canadian sci-fi movie called Cube that I think I mentioned a couple of years ago. And, and a friend of mine just posted a story and we were talking about it because it, it's sort of like a cult film. But basically, this is a movie that 
saw kind of ripped off in a way <laughs> so yeah I, I would i would love it we just commit to next year we do babe and Airbud, and we do mad max and q there's a canadian there. version called mad melvin um, <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm down because again like i legitimately have never seen mad max i don't know why like when fury road came out the other year and everyone was you know gaga about it i'm just like well, i've never seen any of them so i'm not going to see this movie so um yeah i mean that's a good month yeah and i've seen all four movies i wouldn't actually be introduced to anything new uh, so you've seen you've seen Mad, Babe oh, and Mad, Mad Max. Max. Okay, right. Yeah, well, there you go. I would have only seen Babe. <laughs> wow, I'm, I'm gonna know an Australian movie, and you won't. Yeah, I've never seen Mad Max. I just, I like, I just can't explain why I've never. <laughs> and seen And if any we Mad could Max. find the dubbed version where they got like really bad American uh, accents, yeah, 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 because <laughs> you know Mel Gibson, the most Australian man. Um, but that yeah. leads us into the next month. I'm pumped. I'm so excited. Anniversary month, which honestly, like. I just, I'm so being selfish and I don't give a fuck. Like I, I'm excited to see American graffiti because like, it's honestly been a movie I've heard a lot about, you know, around George Lucas, George Lucas, Star Wars, Harrison Ford's like, wasn't that his breakthrough role and stuff yeah. like that. So I've, I've heard a bit about it. So I'm excited to watch that. But then we've got three fucking films that are all on my top 50 lists of all time, all ranked very highly. So we're doing Mrs. Doubtfire, which again is just a movie that, you know, doesn't scream of a movie that you recap, but it's just such a barrel of fun. I used to watch it all the time as a kid. Truman Show, so our first proper Jim Carrey movie. What did we work out that we'd done a Jim Carrey movie before? We did a reviewed, I think. I think we did Sonic. Um, the Grinch. The Grinch. We done. Yeah, I knew there was one that we had done. Um, and The Grinch has never been my favourite Jim Carrey movie, so it's kind of like, yeah, okay, it's nobody's. fine. Whereas, like, The Truman Show, like, oh, my God, like, this movie is just iconic. And I, I remember doing that in high school. We actually did a fairly big uh, study on it. Um, and cause Peter Weir is an Australian director. So, you know, kind of, there's a lot, he did picnic at hanging rock, if I'm not mistaken. So like kind of, he is an iconic Australian director and then rush, we get to talk about formula one, which I know you said you've seen rush, but you think you said you mm. saw it once. Um, I only saw it once. Yeah. But like, that is just a movie, which just like, it's very rare to like, there are a few formula one films that exist and the ones that do exist aren't that great. I mean, Driven is a guilty pleasure. It's an indie car movie. It was meant to be a Formula One movie, but it was so over the top and bad and trashy that it's almost good. Whereas at the moment, we're in this midst of a Formula One renaissance in the world scale and Brad Pitt's making a Formula One movie. John Boyega is meant to be making some Netflix Formula One movie as well. They're doing like a mini series, like a real, uh, like an acted one, not a documentary on it and Senna. Like, so there's certain things that are being done right now which are big, but like Rush was a, a you know, and that's obviously a, a Ron Howard film as well. So I'm so pumped for this next month. I mean, get American Graffiti out of the way. I was doing it to Ben's films, but I'm, I'm excited for American Graffiti as well. I think you're going to love American Graffiti. Like it is definitely not what you expect from George Lucas. Uh, it is a coming of age film. There's going to be a lot of movies that uh, have come since then where you're going to be like, oh, it's kind of like this, but like this is sort of what started the whole trend of like teen movies, I guess more realistic teen films. Uh, and Ron Howard, his first job acting as an adult. This is yeah, we're doing two Ron with a half fifty percent Ron yeah. Howard. Okay, uh, Harrison Ford, early role from him. Yeah, Richard Dreyfuss's first breakthrough film. Uh, I mean, the cast of American Graffiti is ridiculous. How none of these people were famous at the time, but even some of the behind the scenes stories. I'm excited to talk about American Graffiti, including very famous scene where um, Francis Coppola offered uh, to write somebody a check for a uh, million dollars in the middle of a lobby to basically buy the movie. It's going to be so much fun to talk about. Uh, and it did make my top 50 favorite films of all time as well. Truman Show uh, I'm, and Mrs. Delphire, I'm really looking forward to those as well, but uh, especially American Graffiti. So that's next week. Which we established that you will host American Graffiti and then I guess mm -hmm. Truman Show. 
which makes me sad because I want to host all the last three. But um, I guess I need to host Rush. That's an obvious one. You need to host American mm. Graffiti. That's an obvious one. And then I guess I'm, I'm fine to host Mrs. Doubtfire. I get to talk about Pierce Brosnan and Robin Williams and Sally yeah. Field and the kids. Run by fruiting. <laughs> it was a run by fruiter. Um, I, I would tell this story two weeks time, but I just love the fact that I used to love that movie so much that I used to pretend I had an allergy to pepper to be like Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> like I would always say, I don't want my food with pepper. I have an allergy to pepper, which I don't. But like I just pretended as a kid I did because I'm like, Pierce Brosnan has an allergy to pepper. So do I. That's I think before I ever saw him as James Bond. So I mentally knew my love for that man as like a six-year-old watching that film. So uh, during the week we'll have obviously uh, 24. We just started season five, which is great. Uh, I guess Guardians of the Galaxy is coming out. So we'll probably see that. Um, Other shit that's happening. So yeah, listen to those shows because they're good and you should do that because... Those shows, we don't, episodes, we don't necessarily talk about molestation and why Hitler was a good man, but maybe they are coming soon. My name is Ben and cut and dry. <laughs> and my name is Colin and the Leafs lose three to two. Ah, boo. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Oz Network. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast by Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or by copying our RSS feed into your preferred podcast provider. And while you're there, please drop us a rating and leave us some feedback. You can also be sure to stay up to date with all the latest episodes and happenings from the show, as well as finding out how you can get involved in upcoming episodes by following our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as getting everything you need under one roof at the Oz network.net thanks again for listening and we'll speak to you next time like exclusive stuff yes sir. sir do you like having access to your favorite podcast hosts in a way like never before yeah absolutely do you wish you had access to our old survivor oz episodes that you can't find anywhere else online oh yeah if you answered yes to one two or all of those questions then get excited because the oz network is now on patreon <laughs> That's right, your favourite podcast has jumped on the Patreon bandwagon to enable a better listening experience for you, our listener. For more details, simply head to www.patreon.com forward slash oznetwork where you can sign up for as little as $3 a month. It'll be the best decision you make since that last bad one you made. (laughs)